Ernest, what's up? Look, in the world of personal finance management, finding the right tool is crucial. If you've been relying on Mint to keep your personal finances in check, I got a mix of news for you. Mint is closing down. But here's a silver lining. Monarch Money is stepping up as the go-to financial app and users, including myself, are making the switch with a smile. Before Monarch, juggling my finances felt like navigating a stormy sea. Other apps either lacked features or were too cumbersome. Then came Monarch Money. Its ease of use, powerful features, and sleek design turned financial management from a chore into a breeze. The constant updates, well, that's the cherry on top. But what truly set it apart for me was its collaboration feature. Money matters constrain relationships, but Monarch brings peace to the table. The app's collaboration tools allowed my partner and I to seamlessly manage our finances together. We aligned on our budgets, tracked our cash flow, and even planned our future goals all in one place. Speaking of goals, be it saving for a down payment, your dream vacation, or your children's education, Monarch simplifies it all. It's no wonder the Wall Street Journal hailed it as the best budgeting app. This isn't just an app. It's the next generation of personal finance management, ad-free, intuitive, and always evolving with you in mind. Now look, Monarch isn't just another app. It's the all-in-one solution. From effortlessly importing your data from Mint to customizing your dashboard to your heart's content, Monarch respects your privacy with a strict no-ads, no-data-selling policy. This is financial management as it should be, focused on you. Look, after trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash Mondays. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash Mondays for your extended 30-day free trial. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. All right, guys, welcome back. Market Mondays, October 16th. It's almost over, y'all. Yeah. Yeah. We are in that fourth quarter run. Fall has officially approached. Leaves are falling off the trees. Temperature has dropped. It's, it's football season. It's one of the ones, man. Yeah. Interesting times that we're living in, for sure. It's, it's a lot to talk about. A lot to talk about. A lot to talk yeah. about, for sure. So we're not going to waste no time. But we'd be remiss if we didn't mention the biggest event of the Midwest this year. Chicago, Illinois, Sunday. The moment has come. Mm -hmm. Sunday, October 22nd. Market Monday's World Tour. Last domestic stop. Ian Dunlap, earn your leisure. 19 keys, Ross Mack. Incredible. We'll have some other surprises. Yeah. We will have some other surprises. We'll be covering, we'll be talking about real estate. We'll be talking about stocks. We'll be talking about trading. We'll be talking about investing. We'll be talking about Web3. We'll be talking about AI. This is an opportunity for yes. you to not only better your situation, but to meet great people. Mm -hmm. Over a thousand people in the building. Great opportunity to network with fellow Chicagoans. 
and mm-hmm. other people from the Midwest. Indiana will be in the building. Big facts. Sure. 219. Gary, <laughs> Chicago. Maryville. Chicago. Oh, what are we doing? Valpo. Stop I can't playing with yes. Milwaukee will be in the building. That's a big fact. Peoria, Illinois. Detroit, I'm, I'm Detroit. AJ Guyton. Detroit will be in the building. <laughs> shout out to AJ Guyton, Indiana's shout own. AJ Guyton. Calvert Cheney in them. Yeah, shout out to AJ Moye, my dog. He'll be there. This is <laughs> one of the ones, man. This is one of the ones, man. Chicago. Great city, man. One of the one of the favorite places that I love to go to, man. So this is gonna be a legendary event. Um, yes. get your tickets now. Click the link in the bio, click the link that's pinned here, click the link on our website, click the link in Ian's bio. Click click the link and go to Market Monday Chicago World Tour. The bottom level is already sold out. Yeah. So there's only a few, there's only a few seats left at the top. Get mm-hmm. in the building. Yeah. We this will sell out. Get in the building, be there or be square. Chicago, yeah. this Sunday, October 22nd. And we're on a legendary run when it comes to events. Let's just be honest. Yeah, they were like, how, how do you know it's going to sell out? Well, every event <laughs> track not record. Not, every event that we've done for the last 24 months has been legendary from Market Mondays uh, in Harlem at the Apollo to Market Mondays in Madison Square Garden to two showdown shows back to back in Toronto to Royal Albert Hall to another Market Monday show in London. Let's not even talk about South by Southwest and New York Fashion Week and our bars and all of that mm-hmm. good stuff. Invest Fest speaks for itself. No need to even mention that. So this is a pattern. This is this is what you call a pattern here, guys. So Chicago, <laughs> we're not hey. going to leave you empty-handed. Hey, hey, how was our chart looking? <laughs> the trajectory Boy, uh, was incredible. It up, uh, yes. Every time, every time. And Ian will be giving a couple 10. Is it 10 giveaways? Yeah, 10 giveaways. So uh, 10 will be put in Stock Club and 10 will be put in Sniper. Um, I'll be collecting your emails at night. You guys will be uploaded the next day. No grievances, no worries. And presentation is almost done. So it's probably my best one since Invest Fest last year. So I'm going to put on the show. Key's going to put on the show. I'm going to convince them to tell y'all how to build a multi-million dollar media empire while so many other media empires are failing. Shout out to y'all. Put y'all some chat if y'all see your empires coming. So yeah, it's gonna be a good time. Uh, shout out to Power Ninety Two. Shout out to Meha, DJ Ferris, Chicago. Turn up! I can't wait. I'm a Chicago win to Chicago win. Coming from the south, oh, uh, south, play, play a big part in Chicago like Queen Latifah. Hey, Ian, you think I could get a slide in your presentation? I got some results I want to talk about. You think that's all right? I, listen, when I saw the run the show, I'm like, wait, wait, hold on. I got an ISO for you. <laughs> yeah, let's talk it's about right. everybody, everybody talk about what they're doing, what they haven't done. Let's talk about what we have done and show them uh, a little bit of, of the results that have happened over the past 12 months. Let's do that. Yeah. Yeah. Chicago, get your tickets. It's going to be one this, of our this Sunday. This this Sunday. It's the last final call. All right. Um, outside of that, big episode of Earn Your Legion tomorrow. Ray Lewis, Super Bowl champion, one of the greatest players of all time. Great motivational speaker, great entrepreneur, great person. Um, very, very inspiring conversation that we had with him last Super Bowl. We've been sitting on this for a while, so we're gonna put a long time out. for sure. We're putting that Ray Lewis conversation out tomorrow. Shout out to Ray Lewis, um, the great Ray Lewis. And uh, yeah, that's it. Get your tickets to Market Mondays, Chicago. That's the most important thing in this equation right now. Yeah, and shout out to everybody that tapped into the, the Van Jones episode last week. The feedback has been incredible. Everybody, amazing episode. 
Appreciate it. Everybody that texts us messages about it and the things they took away, appreciate that greatly. Uh, so love is love. But y'all know how this works, man. It's time for our disclaimer. Do your own research. Our content is intended to be used and must be used for informational purposes only. It's very important you do your own analysis before making any of this investment based on your own personal circumstances. You should take independent financial advice from a professional in connection with or independently research and verify any information that you find on our show and wish to rely upon, whether for the purpose of making an investment decision or otherwise, people continue to do the research, continue to share the research. When it's great, when you use it, when you execute it, you make some money from it, show love to the person you got it from. Love is love. Yes. Ian, yeah. Any updates, here? Uh, yeah, Stock Club call will be Wednesday at 9 p.m. Central. Um, Stock Club uh, is currently going for $4.99 per month. So for everyone who says, I don't, I charge too much and yada, yada, here's your time. You only have until November 2nd to be a part of the deal. And that will be going away. And if I've made you money, please put yes in chat. See y'all in Chicago. Get your tickets. Cannot wait. Yeah, yeah. Shout out to Chicago. Shout out to, to two Chicago legends, Melvin and Monique Rodriguez. Happy birthday to her. Uh, they uh, told us that they are going to be in the building. So shout out to them. Uh, amazing. For, for sure. So let's talk about Airbnb, shall we? Put the post up on Instagram this morning that Airbnb CEO, um, Brian uh, Chesley, um, he recently said that there's the, the company is fundamentally broken Whew. amongst uh, shrinking profits. So uh, this is uh, pretty disturbing. And it comes from challenges that are faced in 2023 and previous years prior to this. Uh, hosts have staged protests due to declining profits, uh, complicating matters. Uh, competitive Verbo has seen significant growth during this period. To add to Airbnb's challenges last month, New York City, which makes up a large portion of Airbnb profits, uh, induced stricter rules on short-term rentals, putting immense pressure on the platform's operation there. They've been under attack from the hotel lobby for a very long time. It's probably from inception. Yes. Yeah. So, um, you know, in response to these setbacks, Chesley uh, has expressed intentions to revert to the company's core values, focusing on consistent quality, affordable, top-notch service and reliability for its users. Um, and it is notable to mention our good friend Andre Lyon from Cool and Dre. He actually commented mm -hmm. on it and he said uh, in the post, he said, Airbnb and their founder, happen to be one of the very few companies that care about our community stay tuned you'll see what i'm talking about shout out to brian breach ll and the whole team oh, okay okay great okay, okay. okay. so, so some up his sleeve i don't know <laughs> so how do we feel about airbnb airbnb is a company that i've i've been a shareholder in for a long time um so in full disclosure uh, but yeah, they've had they've had some some pretty challenging times. So where do we how do you feel about Airbnb? DJ Clue Voice, do you remember um, when you are looking to be disruptive? You always number one have to please write this down. You have to look back for where your pushback is going to come from from your enemy's sideline. So if you have lobbying and litigation against you, it's going to be tough. Number two. When all these companies started to go up during COVID and had a decline in 2021, most of the companies that were promising uh, individual investors 
to be able to make a lot of money doing something, you have to be airtight in what you are promising and what you're going to deliver. So like if I have to book an Airbnb and there are safety issues and I have to pay a cleaning fee and a dog removal fee and a hair removal fee, the fees are adding up and it's not in favor of the consumer. Number three, um, when you look and you're building a brand, I think it's really important to state, what do you do that no one else in your space is capable of doing? There is a convenient side of Airbnb and you get more space, but the reliability isn't there in comparison to, I don't know, let's say a, a Four Seasons or a Marriott, if you will. Um, I think they got a little bit too hyped off of the quantitative easing, low interest rates when everything was doing well. But I said it here a couple of years ago on the show, like, um, I don't love the stock. Like it's a mixed use real estate play. Um, it was a great idea, but the profit margins, once again, are not where they need to be. The high was at 219 is currently at 125.58. Not the biggest drop that we've seen of, of, uh, companies recently, but they have some stiff competition in VRBO, the whole hotel industry. And I think people got fed up with paying too much. Like it used to be, if you booked the Airbnb, it was on par or as affordable as a hotel that kind of went away. And I think everyone ended up pricing all the consumers out. And here we are. Uh, final lesson, do what is best for the consumers that you're serving. So when we do hit a recession or a down market, your consumer base does not leave with you. Um, not a big fan of the stock. It's definitely not what I would deem Coinbase or the like, which you know we'll talk about next week. But um, this will be a C um, minus, and hopefully they can turn things around. Shout out to Dre. Shout out to Dre. It's it's an interesting time when when you talk about inflation, you talk about interest uh, rates rising. These are the effects of it. So even if you look at the high of Airbnb, when did it happen? It happened during yep. pandemic. So there was a boost in short-term rentals. There was a boost in people investing in properties uh, and having the income to have uh, properties that they can rent out. That changes, right? When interest rates rise, now people can't afford to have that second property anymore because who wants to pay 7% when they do it? In addition, and you look at places where Airbnb was thriving, regulations have changed. But even in places like Arizona, Phoenix specifically, in, in Tennessee, during the time that Airbnb was at its peak, the number of investment properties was outweighing the number of home sales. Insane. Right? All right. So now that flips on its head when you raise interest rates. Now people are not paying, like I said, that 7%. That number is going to come down swiftly. And if your business model is bet based on having people rent, well, you're going to see that these are the long-term effects. But when I hear a CEO talk like that, that's, that's cause for alarm. I commend them for it first, but I agree. It's honest, it's an it's an honest take, but it's an alarming take. Yeah. Um, because you just I mean the, the company hasn't been public for it's only been four years, not even right. To have th this type of urgency call this early is is it's, it's caused to to take a step back and really look what we're doing. You're still investing in it, so so what's your well thought? the stock? I mean, if you really look at it, the stock hasn't really done that bad. It they yeah, it hasn't. It debuted in 2020 mm -hmm. at around $139. It peaked at $206 during COVID. And now it's at $125. Mm -hmm. It's 52-week highs, $154. So it's not like a, a Coinbase. So it's not like a, a lot of these other stocks that or Square, let's say. We were just talking about Square last week. Yep. who dropped like 80%. Mm -hmm. it's, it's relatively held. 
um, it's kind of around the same area that it debuted at with a highly anticipated debut in 2020. So that's encouraging um, that, you know, for the trouble that it's had, it's still kind of held. It's, it's held strong. It hasn't, it hasn't fully collapsed. So I don't think Airbnb is going anywhere. It's like Uber. Um, but you know, they have to, they have to figure some things out, reevaluate some things. Um, but I I think that I don't, I don't see it just falling off the face of the the map. I think it's a good idea. It's, um, something that is needed, solves an issue. There's always going to be a need for, for housing and people to stay places. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, I think that you know they're having some tough t- tough times right now, but yeah, I think they'll be able to get through it. The 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 only concern I have is if we're in a high interest rate environment, and this is the issues that you're having in year three. Yeah, who knows how long we're going to be in a high interest rate environment, right? There's no we we could say like, hey, they're not going to raise rates yeah. again, but they Fed chair may say, hey, we we are raising rates, and now we're yeah. talking about eight percent, which is you know even furthermore sets you back in, inside of your business model it's not like you know like I, mean, I remember when, when they first yeah. it was like yo they haven't even you know expanded to the international landscape like they they were going to which is still an opportunity for them but here you know in their home base and you said new york is is one of the the biggest locations for them in terms of rentals that that interest rate issue is something that's going to linger for the next few years at least I agree. I'll give one negative and, and two positives. Um, when you begin to price people out of homes because people are trying to buy them as investment properties to then flip, that's going to cause an issue and people are going to have a pushback in terms of legislation and complaining to uh, legislature, city council, et cetera. So that's something you have to understand in your brand and in your business, like who you're going to upset. But like Rashad said, the business isn't horrible. Uh, gross margin is 82.15%. Profit margin is 22%. Operating margin is 21%. Return on assets is 12.5%, billion dollars in revenue. Not bad. I think they need to make some adjustments. I think we do need to give him credit though for being honest in this environment. Mm-hmm. We're not hearing a bunch of honesty from most CEOs. Most are um being unfavorable and what they're they are reporting. I do commend him for one of the things that I talked about initially in the show um at InvestFest at Market Mondays Live when I'm evaluating the business is the character of the founder. Um, and for him to come forward and say that we're in trouble, that's actually a great sign. I don't know if they'll turn it around, but in terms of character, at least he's not in the same bank bankman free type area where he's like lying about gains or lying about what the state of the company is. Um, it kind of reminds me of like when Mitch Kupchak was trying to get LeBron before LeBron came and they identify LA was not doing as well as they should have. And then they finally made some adjustments and then they won in a bubble. Um, we have to commend him for being honest about where things are in their business. What, what was the negative? Um, the business model is broken. So the, the he told a truth that should not have been told, and I'm sure it's unfavorable among shareholders, but if he's looking out for the longevity of his career, he did the right thing. Um, I don't see how you continue to have pretty good margins but then you have to compete against hotels like the and especially the biggest thing they didn't address and and rest in peace pop smoke when you didn't fix people getting robbed and killed in, in your properties how how can you how can you fix that that's something that they have to worry about 
It, it sucks. Like, for example, you guys just went through it for InvestFest. I won't say the number y'all spent on security. It never gets talked about. When everyone say y'all charge, that, that's... Y'all told me that number. I said, on the... On the what? Wait, this is for security or just the metal detectors? What? <laughs> okay, you, you have... Because, Lord forbid, if something happened there, we wouldn't have thought anything would happen, but they would have said, Rashad, it's your fault. Airbnb would have had to figure out a way. And the number, so I even hit some people up. I was like, yo, they charge too much. If you knew the security bill, you'll stop all that talking. Mm -mm. I would have just did invest us virtual. What? <laughs> <laughs> so Airbnb has to find ways to, to be more secure and safe because if the risk is it can cost my life, I, I don't want to go there. I'm sorry. How much angst do you put or weight do you put in Verbo and them taking a, a piece of the margin of their business, right? It's just one of those things when we talk about when you're being the leader inside of a space. And anytime we talk about disruption, we always talk about Airbnb, we talk about Uber and how much disruption they've caused. But then there's always that next person that's watching and seeing your business model and saying, how can we replicate yeah. it? How can we do it better? What do you think about the margin that they've taken from Airbnb? Um, I think they'll they'll have an impact. I, I was a fan of uh, Verbal before Airbnb came into the scene, but I think the biggest player we have to worry about is Expedia. Because at some point, if that rentals market is really attractive, they're the king maker in that market. They'll find a way. That's why I say like anytime you get into a space, I'm not looking directly at who is my quote unquote competitors. I'm looking at who is bigger that can kill me. Cardi said, Investing in Birkins has been less stressful than investing in real estate. And everyone said, what does she know? Net worth $80 million. From what I heard, she has 17 properties. I keep saying if her and The Rock and Jason Momoa get together and start trading future, well, I don't know what I'm going to do. These are the things you have to think about as a business owner. So I think Expedia is more of a bigger existential threat to, to their business than VRBO. But I think they do need to make some adjustments to the business but if airbnb wants to call in bring us on as advisors and, and help mitigate these and bring up the shareholder value and stock price hey man perhaps we'll see nine million ten million dollars oh, we get it done yeah the new super host <laughs> big facts <laughs> big facts so all right yeah all right well let's talk about the israel and palestine conflict shall we yeah. so mm -hmm. um what is your biggest fear regarding the conflict between israel and palestine and um how can this affect the global economy and the world markets yeah um i'm going to tread very lightly uh prayers for all those who have been affected once again, I want to stick on the stock market side. My biggest, so when I'm looking at an investment on a fundamental side, there's a few things that matters. Interest rates, quantitative easing, inverted yield curve. Some people will call them black swans. Um, we've already had the Russia and Ukraine uh, issue that could have been avoided. And we'll talk about that later. Now we have this conflict that is popping up. My biggest worry when looking at a potential black swan event is if China gets involved because China did make a statement. You guys can go look at about what, what they said. But if China begins to influence or fund one side of that war, I'm not saying it to be salacious. 
I'm not an expert on foreign policy, but we could end up in a World War III like scenario. And that's why I've been saying for the past eight months, nine months, we need better leadership that is great at resolving situations before they arise. There's a lot that Trump did wrong. And we were having this conversation this past weekend and I had it with a few people. I think Trump could have avoided some of these. Like I'm not a Trump supporter. I didn't vote for Trump, but I can say he's one of the few presidents that kept us out of war. Um, I wish we had a president in office currently that had the diplomacy of a Bill Clinton, Barack Obama, even a Reagan to calm some of these fears. Um, Cause I think the Russian Ukraine situation could have been, been prevented. And if we keep going down this pathway, the part that is scary for us, Russia is able to manufacture warheads at a 10th of the price that we are. And we're running out of money as a country. The fact that we don't have enough and we've been deploying capital to aid Ukraine, we're weak. Tupac said, hey, now I got my money right now. I want war. Now is not the time for us to get into any war. Uh, bond market is falling apart. People are worried about the economy more than ever. We are aiding too many of the countries while not taking care of our own. Um, my biggest concern is if China gets involved, we could go into a multi-year war. And I don't, I don't see how we'll be able to win that long term. Yes. Um, all right. Let's talk about the geopolitical stuff. But let's, yeah, let's dive in. Come on. Yeah. Well, can I first let me just say thank you because last week I think you gave great con uh, great context to the situation and gave Amazing an, overall, an overall thesis of kind of what's been happening in in the region. Um, but even in, in the sense we spoke about it last week from the stock market, Ian, we we watched oil prices rise, we watched them go down. Talk about the direct impact that war has on economies because some people will say, well. The market's going to move either way, right? So talk, can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, it won't be in your favor. I mean, because if we go to war, oil is going to go higher. Um, investors like certainty. So if you there's uncertainty or there's conflict, that's why I was saying rap like, yes, hit him up was an impactful record for Tupac. Every other beef, it really didn't make anybody any money. If you talk to most executives, the liability side of most beefs are not even worth it. Um, so our stock market will be flat or may trend down lower. If you look at most years when we were in war, 91, 92, and those are smaller conflicts that we were able to win, it still had an effect on the stock market overall. So yes, the economy will go, but we don't need another thing on top of like, listen, the bond market is going through a dot-com crash and nobody's talking about it. Crypto has went through the equivalent of a dot-com crash. And everyone's acting like everything's fine. The economy's hanging on by a thread. We don't have great leadership. The debt is at the highest that we've been. Um, debt to GDP is at the highest rate that it's been. College students aren't even passing SATs at the rate that they were 45 years ago. And everyone's like, mm, that's okay. It's not. We are weaker as a country than ever at the worst time while others are getting a little bit stronger. So it will have a dramatic impact on the market if China does get involved. And if we go to World War III, oh, man. So we, we, move, um, we make a 40% drop in the market. Let's talk about Bill Ackman, shall we? Um, what are your thoughts on Bill Ackman? Uh, we posted this on Instagram. 
And this is relevant because this is a financial, this is a financial conversation. So Harvard, Harvard, there's 30 Harvard student groups that signed a, um, a open letter. I'll, I'll read some of the mm -hmm. open letters. So this is the open letter that Harvard students, some of the Harvard students put together and some of the Harvard, Harvard students group signed. Today's events, this is when it first happened, when um, the attack on Israel first happened, right, on the, from the Hamas, from, on the Hamas offensive. Today's events did not occur in a vacuum. For the last two decades, millions of Palestinians in Gaza have been forced to live in an open-air prison. Israeli officials promised to open the floodgates of hell, and the massacre in Gaza has already already con commenced. Palestinians in Gaza have no shelter for refuge uh, and nowhere to escape. In the coming days, Palestinians will be forced to bear the full blunt of Israel's violence. The apartheid regime is only is the only one to blame. Israeli violence has structured every aspect of Palestinians' existence for 75 years, from systemizing systematically land seizures to routine airstrikes, arbitrary detentions to military checkpoints and enforcing family separations and targeting killings. Palestinians have been forced to live in a state of death, both slow and sudden. Um, this is what some Harvard, they, they put that out, right? Mm -hmm. Bill Ackman, mm -hmm. who is a billionaire and one of the most powerful people on Wall Street, he responded on Twitter, um, very upset about the the, I don't know if he went to Harvard or not, but he was very upset about what the Harvard, what those Harvard students had to say. And he, in response, said that he wanted to get the names. He pushed Harvard to release the names of the students that were responsible for those words. Um, quote, none of us inadvertently hire any of their members. So he said that he wanted to make sure that no Wall Street firms inadvertently hired any of the students, mm -hmm. essentially saying that he wanted the names of Harvard students so he can make sure that um, they would never get hired on Wall Street. Now, this is extremely controversial because obviously it, it walks on freedom of speech, right? What, what this country is founded on. And even the ex-Harvard president um, was concerned about this and said it, it it seemed like McCarthyism. This was when everybody was um, scared to be called a communist, right? And if you if you were labeled a communist, then your whole career would just be um, blackballed. So this is extremely relevant because this show is called Market Mondays. And mm -hmm. we talk about the stock market. Mm -hmm. And Bill Ackman is one of the most powerful people on Wall Street. Billionaire hedge fund stock yep. market. So uh, I think it's interesting because he didn't say that he was going to just make sure that they never worked for his company. He said that he was going to make sure that none of us, us, keyword <laughs> us, inadvertently, it's meaning that they're already not going to get hired if they know for sure, but they just want to make sure that they're not making, a, you know, they, they want to, he wants to make sure that none of us. So what this is saying is that he, He's and speaking by us. You mean they? Any Wall Street firm? Yeah, they. Goldman Sachs, you name it. Yeah. Um, yep. Okay. So, 
interesting that he would say this publicly and this has caused a lot of uh controversy in the news so i think that this is important on a few different aspects of it a from the media standpoint because if you read if you heard what i just said those are just the words i think it's important for media to be non-biased and we live in a day and age where there is really no media that is non-biased or your leisure is non-biased but for the most part none of these major media corporations are biased are non-biased yeah. and even how they frame the um the letter from uh, the harvard students a lot of media publications deemed it as a uh, pro hamas they never even mentioned hamas at all um and like I said, this isn't, I'm not even taking a side of the Harvard students, but I'm just, we just have to be factual, right? They never, they never said that they were pro Hamas. They were obviously anti-Israel. That's a fair statement to say. But um, even the word, the way that it has been framed is not actually factually true. The problem with the media is that nobody really ever checks the media. So if you just say, okay, 30 uh, Harvard students put out a pro Hamas, pro um, terrorist letter, well, you're playing, yeah. you're playing with semantics okay. and you're playing with words. And now before even because hardly anybody, I'm sure has even read the letter. Mm -hmm. So before you even read the letter, you're already going into it with a tainted view. I'm assuming Bill Ackerman read it because he's an intelligent person and, and very rich. So I'm assuming that he read it, but maybe he didn't read it. Maybe he just saw the headline. Who knows? Mm -hmm. um, but I think that it, it brings out a very dangerous um, point in this country when somebody can openly vow to block the careers of somebody because they have an opinion. They didn't, they didn't fund money to this. They didn't say like, you know, we're going on the front lines to fight ourselves. They, they openly wrote an opinion, um, in a peaceful manner. Right. And you could disagree with their opinion. That that's something that you have a right to as an American. And you can choose not to hire them in your company if you want to, but to openly try to collude, collude, with all every single Wall Street firm to stop their hiring because they don't agree with you. Well, that's such a, that's a, a, a dangerous precedent. And it, it, it would never happen if it was for another disadvantaged group. If anybody said anything disrespectful black, about black people, I've never seen this level of blackball happen. In fact, you could even become president because when Donald Trump called the Central Park five rapist, and um, they should be, he said, he actually Sentence said that they, they, should, they should have the death, death penalty. penalty. And they were 16 and 17 years old. Yeah. They weren't, they weren't even adults. And then it comes out that they were exonerated and that they were actually um, completely misused by the justice system, that they never committed the crime at all. They actually got like $60 million from New York City. And he said that that was a waste of taxpayers' money. He doubled down on the statement and he become president. So we're we're living in very interesting times and yeah, i think bro. that the, the media is at a very uh important uh part of society and we we must have free we must have free press we can never be bullied the press can never be bullied and pe people's opinions have to be respected across all across all um aisles because if, if it, once we start to to walk on people's opinion then we 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 really uh, compromise the integrity of any level of democracy that we think we have. Yeah. I, I mean, it's interesting. Everything you said is I'm hundred percent in the green swings, but it, it's interesting when, when you think about the statement being made public, imagine the conversations that are being had in private. Private. Right. Like, yep. I mean, it, it makes you think about that part. But the, the other thing that's also interesting that I think it's overlooked is that rather than 
talking to the school, he's attacking the students, right? He could have just said that, hey, if we support Harvard, then, and this is my alma mater, we're not gonna be a booster for Harvard anymore. He specifically is going after students, which is interesting, right? These, these are the the, the future of, of our society. This could have been a learning moment, even if he thought that he disagreed with them, this could have been a moment for him to engage with them and have conversation, right? Because ultimately there could be an understanding that comes from that conversation. But to put us, right, to, to speak about an entire industry, right? When we spoke to Van Jones and we talked about finance and we talked about the financial structure of America, the heart of it is Wall Street. So what you're doing is derailing yeah. and putting up a roadblock for any financial progress. That's just from a standpoint, even if they wanted to be in the world of finance, maybe they didn't, but to have their names released, that could affect them in any other career field, right? Just because they had an opinion or they exercised their freedom of speech, which is interesting, but th these these are the things that are happening, right? It's so like we always try to go over the-, the always has our mindset and the conversations that we're having these things are happening in public but so many more conversations that happen in private that are probably similar to this that are never going to be released which is important that puts us in a position to say you know what we're part of media we see how this is going we're going to say something because we have the right to you have to i don't want to take the other side of it but i do want to highlight a couple things number one you have to be very careful of what you say um, number two, there's a reason why people have always told people to stay away from religion and or politics, um, because you are once you take a side, you then are going to upset potential enemies that may be on the other side of that conflict or advice that you're given. I do think it's unfair for him to call them out. But the other part of it is if he went to Harvard, I think he graduated 88, then went to Columbia as a donor there isn't the purpose of power to be able to do what you want to do with it. I ask all the time, what's the purpose of having F you money? If at some point you can't say F you, I think if someone agrees with what the student said, they should hire them at their firm. The way the data is skewed though, not many will. I think it's unfortunate. Even here, it was one episode. I won't say what guests, but, uh, some of the audience members want unfavorable to the guests and have some comments in YouTube. And they ended up on the blacklist. You got to be careful what you say to people. People aren't always going to tell you and publicly, hey, I'm going to get my lick back. But on the back, you have to be very, and we've had these conversations privately about diplomacy, um, when to attack, when to retreat, when to not give certain things energy. It's unfortunate, but in the time we're in, if you're going to take a stance and you're not willing to back that stance with your own capital, you could be in trouble. You really could be. Also, um, we, we talked about it before. Freedom of speech was really made for in your house and in small private gatherings. You can't say whatever you want to in public and online. It's no different. And I'll say this for those of you who work in corporate. I had a stock club call Saturday. I, four times in a row, begged everybody in Red Panda, stay away from this topic, your thoughts, political disposition, because the same thing is going to happen to you. If you so choose to take a side and you're wrong or you get attacked, that is the price of speaking. I know we have this illusion of a, demo of a democracy, really Republic in the United States of America, but this has been an aspect like the thing that I saw from most of us that are black. It's like this has been happening to us in every industry. 
it's unfortunate that it happened to them. Yes. But this, this kind of treatment has been happening to us forever. I do think I think it highlights I think it highlights a few things. So you're right. You have to if you're if you're willing to speak on something, you have to be able to deal with the consequences of that. Yeah. Um, and there's always consequences for everything. But I this is why I think that is dangerous because when I think of Harvard, I, I'm looking at um student organization putting out a letter that's almost similar to like a press that's that's like press right so when it's just a random person on twitter saying something you got you you know if you say something but when because at what point does it stop right at what point does somebody's personal views opinions or stating the facts you start to walk a thin line this country was built on freedom of speech that's essential the reason why America has been looked at in this light is because most countries in the world don't have free speech. Most countries in the world, you say something about the president, you can actually get killed. Absolutely. Right? In, in America, like, you know, we've had the ability for to to say F the police. Right. Like they like they they said that. And then or or, or you know, talking about the, the president and easy E walks through the White House with the Jerry curl. Like, you know what I mean, like this is this is our culture, hip hop. But that's an example that. In other countries, nobody. If you would have said "f the police," you would have got killed. Yeah, or arrest the president. If you would have said something about the president, you would your brains would be blown out on the street. Well, who knows if how this country might look in fifty years or hundred years, right? If we take an authoritarian approach to things and limit people's freedom of speech and publicly and publicly do it with such confidence, right? It wasn't even like it was done in private. We, if we publicly start to denouncing people's freedom of speech in such confidence, well, now you, now you, you make people scared to speak. And now once you make people scared to speak, now you, you compromise freedom of speech, you compromise the free press, and you create a very, a very dangerous um, situation. So I think that you're right for sure, but you have to at some point question authority because if you never question authority, then it'll just be status quo. And that's not the way to, to have a productive society by just following status quo. We have to have uncomfortable conversations. We have to have debates. We have to be able to question things publicly without getting denounced and, and, and villainized, right? It's part of it's, this is this is part of American culture, right? Mm -hmm. If if we don't have this, we're not we don't have America. This is part of it. it Quick it, question. It, 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 like I was saying, it, it's important, right? But you take into to con conception, like we we're talking about a student body group, and so the average student in college is what eighteen to twenty three, right? So you're still talking about minds that are still developing, and even in in, in Ackman's statement, he's saying. We should be made uh, aware of people who support terrorist groups. Like you said, there was nothing in there that says he's. Well, that's what I'm saying. That's, they, they, they never I'm said they support terrorists. I'm, I'm, I'm talking about his response. So his response is that if people are supporting terrorist groups, we should be made aware of that, especially if these are people that we're going to potentially hire in the future. Inaccurate. But what that does is when other CEOs read his statement, they're going off of his inaccuracies. And so you get the CEO of Sweetgreen saying, I want to know who they are so I can never hire these people. Right. And so we're talking not, now this isn't even a financial conversation anymore. Now this is just like any career path that you're choosing. If your name is now released, it's over with. It's like you're done. Yeah. For a, a statement or a group that you came together with when you were in high school or just out of high school, 
in college, 19 to 23, and you said something that somebody misconstrued. Media picked it up. It was inaccurate. The statements were inaccurate. And now your life is ruined. I don't even I mean, want I, to take the other side of the argument, but can I ask a question real quick? Yeah, what me at Red Panda and you guys are earning your leisure hire anyone that said anything favorable about any neo-Nazi group? Well, let me ask you this. Um, it's already it's already happening because um Robert Kawasaki, who I, I, I read his book. I I I say that that his book changed my life. When he says things like the Black Lives Matter terrorists and George Floyd, you know, paraphrasing like you no know, kind of he's resisting arrest and all these things, it's already done. Yeah. We vote the the public has already voted for Donald Trump, who we can go through what he says a variety of different times. On a weekly basis. On a weekly basis. Um, I mean, we can just go through sports. We can go through, we can go through this whole list yeah. of things. So to answer your question, we don't have we've never had power in this country. So that's not even a fair question to ask because we don't control power. We, as far as black people, we're not in a position to blackball anybody. We've never been. We can't blackball anybody from politics. We see that they rose to the highest level of power. We can't black blackball anybody from finance. We see that they openly disrespect black people and they already they rise to the highest level of power. We have never been in a position to actually enforce any level of being able to blackball anybody. So well, the, the, the bus boycotts, I think we just conceded for the wrong things when we had leverage. There's a bunch of brands where we can turn around and, and make not popular if we choose. I, I don't think we care enough to Boy, boycotting something and actually blackballing somebody is two different things. Yeah. We can boycott things and say we're not going to support this business. I'm saying as far as having the power. Vocally or non vocally to go in a board meeting and say, like, now nah, this yeah. person's not getting hired and we're not going to put money behind this campaign and we're not going to give him. That's something that we just don't have. We, we've never had enough power to and we still to this day don't have enough power. So it's hard to even speak from that hypothetical because we, we're not in that position. We, we haven't. But we're in a position where we can be blackballed. And that has happened continuously. Ackman yeah. said it verbally. And like I said, this is bigger than just the Harvard students, but this brings up a bigger. How many people? Yeah, it's a big issue. How many people have said something where they supported Malcolm X and they didn't agree with you supporting Malcolm X? And you'll never know that you didn't get hired. Mm -hmm. You never know that you that you didn't get corporate funding. How many people supported the, the Black Panthers, the real Black Panthers, not the Marvel? And just by yep. you saying that, you never know that that was the reason why it didn't work out for you. You never know that that's the reason why you didn't advance in your career. Yeah, You didn't but, get that home loan that could have changed your family's trajectory 45, 50 years ago. You just, it's implicit. It's not as explicit as him saying this. But okay. Uh, well, I I, can we, the last point, if we can state the obvious, Ackman's ethnicity plays a lot into what he said. And as it should. Mm -hmm. I don't if and I, I don't want to dance around it, and I, but I also don't want to turn up on it. But it's like people have to be mindful of the repercussions of what they say. And we've seen people get canceled before over similar comments. Just because you're in college doesn't negate you of responsibility for it. Do I think it's fair? No, but this is the truth. This has always been done. This is not new. And he's not the first one publicly to say it. Like, even at one point when I went to Indiana University, if you said anything crazy about Bob Knight, 
it was going to affect your life on campus. At one point, like Bob was king of Bloomington. If you said something disparaging about him, it would have an impact on your grades and how teachers felt about you if they were pro him. This has always happened. The biggest thing I want us to take away is free speech is not free. Press is not free as if pharma is paying for it. And we've never had the right to publicly say whatever the fuck we wanted to. But even the Bob Knight, there's a good example until you see him putting his hands around a kid's neck. Neither views about uh, you should have made the layup or pass the ball to Gabriel. <laughs> you, know you know what I mean? Like yeah. layup. <laughs> Coverdale was making them three. Hey, babe boy, you should have made them lay. I'll choke you too. You missed 14 lay. I'm just joking. These jokes written by 85 South. Shout out to AJ <laughs> Right. But Alan Henderson, you should have made the layup though. The, the last thing we'll say about this is how do you <laughs> feel about uh, DJ Vlad saying that um, Drake and uh, is the most famous Jewish person in the world, and DJ Khaled is the most famous Palestinian person in the world, and he, they haven't said anything yet, and he's disappointed that they haven't made comments. I think Drake and Khaled realize if they make a statement, it would be too detrimental for their brand because they're not well versed enough in it to speak on it, and it will have an impact on their lives. Everyone does have to make a statement. Vlad, you should make a statement. I think he Make did. Your statements. Um, Continue to put out what you're putting out on QPD and pay your workers better. <laughs> yeah. All right. Put, put out. All right. Out, shout to... Okay. All right. TV time. And, and then I think I think we have to offer. Also, my thing with <laughs> my thing with the Vlad situation is that once again he asked um he asked Drake he said in Jewish in Jewish law Drake's mother's Jewish so he's Jewish by Jewish law he was raised in a Jewish community. Um, you know, he gave a whole long list of things out, you know, Drake and Jake Drake says he's Jewish. So he should he should speak as a Jew, he should speak on Jewish issues. My thing is I've never heard Vlad ever say that, you know, and this is by historical law, definitely by American law. If you had one drop of black blood in you, you would consider black, right? This is on the exactly. slave plantation. Um, if you were light skinned, you might have got treated a little better, but you were still black. You never was treated as a white person. So Drake's father's obviously black, he's a black man. Um, Drake is entrenched in hip hop culture, spent summers in Memphis, Tennessee, and is a hip hop artist. I don't think anybody would debate that he's a black man, just like J. Cole, who's biracial or President Obama or a variety of other people. Um, but I've never heard him ever say that Drake as a black man has an obligation to speak on black issues. So that's interesting. But then also, I think that, yeah, it is wise as a celebrity. If you don't fully understand what you're saying to say nothing at all. We saw Justin Bieber put up, um, praying for Israel with a picture of Gaza. And, um, <laughs> and, um, and you know, why it's, it's, better not to, it, it's better not to say anything yeah. if you're not as if you we have a, a weird of celebrity obsession obsession. And 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 like it's like even Floyd, like, you know, Floyd is one of the greatest boxers of all time. And his business acumen is wonderful. Um, and yeah. we, we interviewed him at Market Mondays. And when I the first time I met Floyd was Market Mondays, um, he had glasses with no lenses in them. So I, I say that to say I bring it up. No, just be honest with you. No, I'm just being honest with you. So nah, no, you're painting the picture. You gotta paint the picture so vivid they can see it clearly with so their eyes. Closed. I don't I wouldn't necessarily take world views from Floyd Mayweather's <laughs> not my go-to. He's not yeah, my go-to. Go but we've had you're this conversation, good. right? In certain communities, we look for people, pundits that are experts or have are well versed in geopolitical issues, right? 
in our community, we look to entertainers. It, is it that we look to it or the media pushes, pushes them? Because there are people. How are we talking? Hey, yeah. okay, let's talk. The media interview, that goes back to the Vlad thing. Yeah. Why right. do you, 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 you obsessed for a Drake comp? There's plenty of qualified people right. that study this for years. Yeah. That's relevant. That can actually have an intelligent conversation. So we're pushed on the fact of, let's see what LeBron James is going to say. Let's log on Twitter yeah. and see what DJ Khaled has to say. Like, you know what I mean? Like, so I think that part of it is the media obsession with celebrities that forces us to always look. Because yeah. the first thing that happens, it, George Floyd, have, the first thing we do is go to our favorite celebrity what and did they see say? what did they do. Did, did they go into stories? Did we check because, because every hour. It becomes a story, right? If some, if one of them say it as a celebrity, then it's going to more clicks, right? For, for that business, for the media business to work, you have to have people who are going to draw eyes and attention to a statement or to a story. And so the fact that they keep going to them is for that exact no, reason. But, but like, now, said, are they qualified? No, but they have they have influence. So it's like Muhammad Ali, right? This is a perfect person who was actually qualified to speak, and he had a lot of influence. And he's somebody that was a leader, even though he was a, a you know an entertainer as far as boxing. He was mm -hmm. an athlete, right? But like I said, you know, every 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 athlete's not Muhammad Ali. No, so, no, 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 no. Now we Muhammad that era of athlete Muhammad Ali. Muhammad. Not nah, Kyrie, you got Kyrie. Bill Russell, Kyrie, Kyrie, Bill Russell, Jim Brown, Kyrie, and but Kyrie also got Colin Kaepernick. Kaepernick. Jalen Brown, Jalen Brown, Brown. Colin, Kyrie Irving. Kaepernick had his moment in time. He sparked a, a, a but situation. He, never spoke. he didn't speak, but to his point, to his credit, maybe he wasn't confident or qualify or qualify. Right? True. Yeah. All right. Switching switching topics. We have a guest. And this is something that is extremely important. Back to the financial conversation. Yes. So Ashley yes. Bell um, of Redemption Bank, Black-owned bank, um, like officially Black-owned bank. And um, it's an interesting conversation. I was just reading an article where him and Dr. Bernice King, I believe that is um, Dr. King's daughter. Yeah, Coretta Scott and, and Dr. Martin Luther King. Yep. Yes. Um, so, yeah, they're partners and they are um, having the first black owned bank in the Mount Mountain West region. Mm -hmm. I believe the bank is based in Utah. Very interesting location <laughs> for a black owned bank um, and a variety of other different things. So, yes. Can we welcome our guests? Let's bring them up. Hey, how's hey. Going? Hey. Ashley, how's everything going, man? It's going good, brothers. How are you? Uh, Very good. Uh, great, man. Good seeing you again. We ran into each other in the airport a few weeks ago. That's right. That's where we live. <laughs> so <laughs> you on the block. It's, it's Atlanta airport. It's a new block. <laughs> so that's a fact. So, um, all right. So let's talk. We talked about Redemption Bank. You, We spoke to you on the phone and you explained the bank. And um, a Black-owned bank is extremely important. There's, a, there's very few Black-owned banks in, in the United States of America. And um, can you explain the process of starting the bank? How did it get started? Utah, the whole spill yeah. behind what's going on. Yeah, it, it's, it's, you know, we, we're in a very um, interesting time in our nation's history. When we look back at the night uh, that my co-founder, Dr. King's father, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated, we had over 135 black banks in America. And today mm -hmm. we have 20 or less. So just think about that. 
The night he was assassinated, we had over 135 black banks and now we only have 20. And that's not because of some, you know, MA action. It's really because, uh, you know, black banks struggle because black people struggle. Um, when you have a bank that holds the ambitions of your local barbershop, your, your, your church, your faith-based organization, and every time America has an economic downturn, black people are the first to get fired. And when, yeah. and when, when it's over, we're the last to get hired back. Well, the banks that hold that money are going to be the first banks to go down. So precipitously, since 1968 to today, every time we've had an economic downturn, we've lost a third of the black banks. We've been whittled down to 20. And now the conversation is like, well, we got to have a realistic community conversation about one, um, why do we need black banks? And two, sort of what is it going to take to create more of them and to make the ones we have more robust? The first thing is we need black banks because when you look at approval rates, um, black banks approve black people for home loans at 85%. There's no white bank out there approving 85% of black people for home loans. It doesn't happen that way. Um, when you look at all of across the board, the ability for black people to walk into an institution and know that they're going to get a fair decision, that's black banks. We, the anxiety alone behind going to get a loan from a bank that's not black, um, it caused there's studies that show so many mental health issues around credit scores and all the things that are yeah. involved in that. And you see, you know, and, and this is what we talk about banking your values. If you right now have a bank and you don't care what that bank does with your money and who they help or hurt, then that's a problem for us as a people. We must always be conscious of the fact that the banks that hold our money while we're asleep, they're using that money either to help us or hurt us. There is no neutrality. There's no, there's no, there's no, you can just sit back tonight and go to bed thinking like, well, I don't know what's going on. Um, I'm pretty sure everything's fine. It's not. You can Google right now and look at the top 10 banks and know who has federal consent decrees right now for discriminating against black people. And if you hold your money in those banks, you are funding the actual discrimination of your own people. So I say that to black people. I say that to white people who tell me or any other race of people that says, what should I do? Well, the first thing you should do is bank your values. If you don't believe that this stuff should be happening, then don't put your money in banks that are perpetuating it. Right. So we have to have black banks. Now, why Utah for us? It was really simple. You know, Utah is, is the best state for banking regulatorily. This bank yeah. has to be able to reach every black person where they go to bed. Um, unfortunately, the black banks that we have now, many of them are locked into communities that are highly concentrated in low to moderate income areas. So they're fragile. And Dr. King and I created a foundation that tries to help these banks. And we've done really big deals to help big sports and big entertainment do deals with black banks. You probably saw what we did um, with the NFL. I did, I did, we did the largest black bank deal with the NFL last month in the history of sports um, all the way back to 2020 when we did the first, the deal in Atlanta, which was the first sports arena in American history, 100% financed by black banks. We've been at the center of this movement to create an ecosystem where black banks can thrive. But what we're doing in Utah is the next generation of black banks. It's that black bank that, you know, I won't, I won't name any names, but there's fintechs out there that put themselves out as banks that aren't, right? Yeah. And then you find out they aren't. You're like, oh, man, I got I thought I was banking with a black bank, but it's really a fintech. And it's not. We actually need a black bank with the capabilities that fintechs have. Because the reality is, brothers, unless we can create a digital bank that is a real bank, a real brick and mortar FDIC insured bank that can export technology to reach black people to live in Milwaukee, Chicago, the Bay, Detroit, Atlanta, until something like that happens, then where we are 
is that we have a system where fintechs are actually sucking money out of our community. And let me just give you a good example. If I'm in Castleberry Hills in Atlanta and I'm planning on going to get a haircut, my barber's going to tell me, yo, hit me on Cash App. Right now, Cash App does well because they spend a lot of money in our culture. They spend a lot of money oh, in our rap song, they spend a lot of money. You hear it all the time. Now, the moment I send that $40 to my barber on Cash App, now I got Citizens Trust Bank, which is a black bank, a mile and a half away, less than a mile away from that barbershop. That money leaves my black bank, goes to Cash App's bank, which is a white bank in the middle of nowhere that has no black people on the board, that has all white males on the board, that doesn't do anything to reinvest that money back in our community. So what I just did is I exported my dollar out of the black community and put it in another bank for other people to use and leverage for opportunities. So we have to have a bank with that digital apparatus to circulate our dollar. Otherwise, we are going to increase the velocity and the exodus of black money out of our community at, a, at such a high rate that we will actually have generational consequences on our ability to sustain ourselves. So this bank is important because Utah is the best state for digital banking. That's why SoFi is there. That's why Ally is there. That's why every major digital bank is sitting in Utah because of the regulatory environment. And we're going to take advantage of that and reach everybody and be able to have that nationwide ecosystem by which black people can bank together, leverage our money together and grow wealth together. Yeah, I mean, lowering the landscape is vitally important. That was part of our conversation of looking at all the financial institutions that are in Utah. We actually got to, you know, we were there uh, in February for the All-Star break. Yeah. And we were looking around like they're here, right? Even though 2% of the population is African-American. We were looking at like what the first black owned bank, what does this really mean? So talk about that process, right? Because yeah, your your story is very unique. You're, you're the first uh, bank to acquire a white-owned bank by African-American investors. I believe it was Holiday Bank and Trust. Yeah. So talk about that and, and what led you to that specific bank to say that this is the, the thing we need to acquire and go and invest in. Yeah. And, 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 you know, unfortunately, when you're the first to do something, you learn why you're the first, right? <laughs> if it's something hard to do, the history will teach you why you're the first to do something. And here's, here's the reality. The reason that we're the first black investor group, Dr. King, myself, uh, we have good brothers like Robert Smith and others that have invested in us. Um, the reason we're the first is because of this phenomenon that exists in our country called white flight. Um, when black people show up at a restaurant too many times, white people leave. They show up in a neighborhood, white people leave. Show up to the school, they're gone. Well, you can imagine what would happen if black people took over a white bank, the money could leave. Yeah. And we saw that happen with Silicon Valley. Silicon Valley went from being the staple of an industry to didn't exist in two weeks because the money left like that. You can't stop somebody from moving a checking account. So the reason that you've never seen this before was because every time brothers or sisters had tried it, the white people would find out and they would just leave. And then you don't have a bank. What are you buying if everybody's gone? So you've always had to buy another black bank so you don't get that shock of, oh, well, what does this mean? Because you, you got to think about this for a second. It's 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 a little jarring, you know, for a, a white person to wake up one day and think a black person owns their bank. Like that's something that they just never would think about would happen. Right. So we had to do a lot of legwork in Utah to deal with, you know, they got a they got a very strong church presence there of the, the, the Latter day Saints. You got a very strong business community. We had to go do what we had to do to make sure everybody understood what this would mean for them and how this would be better for them.
how being bought by black people are going to bring you more money and more resources. And the first thing is like this, man, look, it's a community bank. At the end of the day, um, people bank at community banks because they think they get a better deal. They think they get treated better, no matter what color you are. And so what we saw is we were going to give the existing staff extension of employment agreements so that when people called, you know, because the first thing they did is they called the bank and said, I saw in the Wall Street Journal. I mean, we made front page of the Wall Street Journal. This is the most high profile bank acquisition of a non-distressed bank in America. So let me ask you, let me ask you a question. Let me ask you a question. Yeah. So you guys brought a white bank, right? Yeah. In, in the whitest place in America. Yeah. Right. Um, how many people left as a result of finding out that their bank was now owned by a black company? Not many. Not many. But that was that's not on that. But, but what I'm trying to tell you is that that's that's not by accident. We had to do the work to mitigate that. And the work that we did was, one, you don't go to a community bank unless you know who's there. Right. You pull up to a community bank. You're supposed to know the teller. You're going to know the manager. You're going to know somebody to make you feel like this yeah. is better than going to the big box. Right. So everybody who they interface with, I kept on staff. So when they called and they're like, hey, is Tracy still there? What I mean, just be real. They called there immediately. Once they saw it, a lot of the customers called and said, well, did the black people fire you? What's going to happen next? Actually, order of business. You're all gone. Right. That was that, that actually happened. So when they called and they asked, did they fire you? They said they, they were like, well, actually, Ashley and Dr. King gave us a, a extension of our contract and gave us a raise. So mm. when you're paying people and you're taking care of them, they're like, okay, well, this is how black people do business. Now, think about Utah. They probably have never had to do business with black people. So we started with a blank slate. So they're like, all right, well, black people came in. We got more money. We got more stability. And they're bringing in more money so that the bank can have more bells and whistles and do the things we wanted to do. The second thing we did is we had to go to the community organizations and explain to them what does it mean? Because unfortunately in America, when you say black bank, and any black bank will tell you this, six out of 10 white people will say, well, does that mean my money can't go there? Yeah. I mean, it's only black money. You don't want my money? And I'm like, yeah. Of course you want your money. You know what I'm saying? So you gotta really, you gotta really break it down for what this means. And I gotta say that we've had tremendous support. Um, this actual, you know, this this month, we're doing a big kickoff of all our founders. You guys got an invitation there. It's gonna be something special. The Utah community has gone above and beyond to try to change this narrative of how people see them in the most positive way. And I give them credit. So they're actually, for our founders kickoff this weekend, they're actually flying in um, to do a unity service, a, a joint service with the Mormon Tabernacle Choir. They're flying in the entire choirs of Morehouse and Spelman to Salt Lake City to do a unity event to support what we're doing. Like that's like 130 people that are flying from Atlanta. And Dr. Yeah. King and I are out there. And it's going to be a, one of those situations where being the only black bank in the Rockies is going to be tremendously profitable for this bank. It's going to be tremendously an economic development tool for the state of Utah. And the governor said this, you know, I talked to the governor the night, you know, the governor pretty much said, look, if I can show the world that black people in Atlanta can come to Utah and make some money, hell, anybody can come to Utah and make some money. And that's real. Yeah. And so they see us as an economic development tool to show the world that this is possible. So my investors, people who we've gotten to invest in this bank, too many times when you say black bank, people think it's a nonprofit. They hear the word CDFI, they think like, well, that's not trying to make money, it's trying to help people. And they are, but you cannot be a bank unless you're making money. Let's be real. So we believe you can do good and do well. You can do good, you can help people. 
You can be a mission-driven institution, but you also can make money for your investors by being in an environment where we're not just asking for, uh, we're not just going to grow this to get more black customers and white customers. We're trying to take this to the next level and be the go-to for industries. Here's what's unique about this bank. Sports financing, and you guys know this world, you know how important sports is to communicate our message to, to our people. Sports entertainment is the vehicle. You guys are the best at it right now. Like, this is what you do. And we were able to get the NFL to give us their chief technology officer to be on this board of this bank because the NFL knows that we've done hundreds of millions of dollars of deals before I even acquired this bank through the Black Bank Foundation financing big sports with small black banks, totally revolutionizing the way capital is, 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 is utilized on the marketplace and debt. The second thing, Major League Soccer, Major League Soccer, the commissioner, Don Garber, gave us his CFO to sit on our board. We got the CFO of Major League Soccer. We got the chief technology officer at National Football League. No small bank anywhere has that kind of power at the league level that has oversight and the sort of vision over how this is how how financing is going to happen in these two big sports that are leading the industry. So for us, not only we're going to be a community bank, the place where black people can go and get access to credit and opportunities without worrying about the things they worry about a big bank, but we also are going to be the center of gravity when it comes to financing big sports in America. This is where you will see big sports continue to go to get access to make sure that, look, because we're too small to do it on our own. Redemption Bank will not just be the first black bank in the Rockies. We'll be the center of gravity to lift all black banks up because every deal I've done, whether it's with the NFL or MLS, we've invited every single black bank to be a part of our deals. And to be honest with you, every black bank in America has been on at least one of our deals, except for one. Out of 20, 19 have been with us. And we think okay. this has given us another opportunity to uplift everybody by going into these deal flows. And I'm going to tell you one last thing, why these deals matter. Because when the NBA shut, when, when, they, when they marched off the field and COVID hit, they built a bubble. They played every game. They had a whole championship. They didn't miss one game. Every game was on TV. Well, the loan that we did with the Atlanta Hawks and the NBA, that check was coming in from the NBA on time every month when the barbershop shut down, when the building fund was being used for other reasons at the church because COVID was hitting. And these banks were not getting the support from the from the fragile businesses that were shut down. Having a diversified portfolio in every industry is important and especially for a bank. So what big sports provides is a economic downturn proof source of income. So what I tell the commissioners of big sports is by banking with us and banking with black banks, you actually are helping out the communities that produce your talent in the first place. You can't exist without these communities and the people that come from them. So you want to help out grandmama and her church. You want to help out the brother who who's trying to start a business and needs that black bank there for him because nobody else is listening to him. Help us out by helping these black banks do deals that white banks do every day. And I can guarantee you by doing that, you'll have what's called um, this impact banking will be a force multiplier in the community. And what Redemption is going to be doing is lead that effort from the best state for banking and export those laws and those opportunities to black banks across the country. Quick question for you. I get your pushback on fintech, but what exceptional products, services, technological innovations do you guys plan to launch for uh, the consumers that you want to bank with you and that are banking with you so that they can leave those fintech applications alone? Brother, that's a great question. And let me explain to you where, where I think this goes in the larger picture. You're right. The innovation that fintechs provide will always be faster and more innovative than banks just because of how they're set up. Here's the problem. 
you know, I own a fintech. I own Ready Life. We got, we all got the same problem. When you us, you Greenwood, or, or you Mocafi, or, or SoFi, it doesn't matter. The problem is when you're banking as a service, you have to sit on top of a bank with the technology to provide that service. So if you're Ready Life, we sit on top of a white owned bank. If you're Greenwood, you sit on top of a white owned bank. All of them do. But you can't fault them for it because there isn't a black bank in America that can have the technology for them to exist. So we ultimately are trying to answer that question. We're building this bank in the in the in the most tech forward state so that whoever the next generation of entrepreneur is in the fintech space, that they don't have to sit on top of a bank that's not connected to their community anymore. So whoever the next ready is, whoever the next Greenwood is, Cash App, Venmo, that they can sit on top of a black bank now and be able to still do what they do. So what we're providing is an access point for entrepreneurs to sit on top of our bank so that they can go to the marketplace and provide all the innovative service. But the difference is when I'm on the block in Atlanta and I'm about to do a haircut and my barber asked me to hit him on cash app, the difference is that money won't leave Atlanta and go to some bank in Ohio, that it will go to a black owned bank where I use any fintech that's tied to our bank. So the goal for us close that loop on the ecosystem, create a bank that any fintech can sit on top of so we can turn that money into community and not export it through the apps that we have now. So, okay. So banks make money by investing other people's money, right? Yeah. Essentially. Um, and they invest the money in loaning it out. That's basically it. They take your deposits, they loan it out, live on the spread primarily. So what is you guys, um, investment strategy or what, what, what do you guys invest the, the consumer's money in? So it's not, a, it's not about necessarily investing at the, at the holding company level. Any investment we make has to be approved by the federal regulatory bodies. Uh, there will be opportunities to do that. And I do think that some of the work that we talked, that we just talked about in fintechs, I think it's appropriate for us to look at figuring out how do we spark more innovation in the fintech space so that we can close that ecosystem. So investing in technology and in businesses that are in that space would make a lot of sense for us. But what makes the the technology we're talking about is you have to be able to, in a post-COVID world where you know nobody's walking in the bank to do anything right now, unless you just have to, we have yeah. to be able to create a concierge level of banking so that right now where you're sitting at, wherever you are right now, if you decide that, hey, you know what? I'm just going to go ahead and buy this second house in New Orleans. Um, I need to just figure this out. We have to provide the concierge level of banking so you don't feel like you're on your own. That technology needs to be seamless, but it still has to have real people working with you. Only 4% of African-Americans use small business administration loans. And that's government guaranteed loans. That's the easiest way of of getting loans for businesses that have a hard time in in the debt field. Only 4%. And I used to, I was at SBA. Y'all know I was the regional administrator for SBA for the Southeast United States. At the end of the day, that's, that is one of the biggest tragedies we have out here because we're not getting access to these resources, but I get why people don't do it. It seems like a headache. Nobody wants to deal with it. You have to create what, what, what JP Morgan gives a $50 million customer is what we give a $50,000 customer at redemption. That level of handholding, working with you every step of the way to make sure you get access to the products and services. So what we invest in is like, we take these deposits, the people, these big corporations are giving us, and then we turn them into loans and opportunities, whether it's your home loan, your business loan, your faith-based organization loan, we create debt-based opportunities. And when it comes to investing, it is critically important for us to look at investing at any business that closes the racial wealth gap 
and secures the ecosystem for black wealth. If anybody's in that space, then absolutely, that's something redemption should be looking at investing in. So the, the numbers are staggering, right? Like you said, in the 60s, there's 135 black banks by the early 2000s, dot-com bubble, we're down to 47. Today, we're roughly about 16 to 17 of those banks. However, inside of that 16 to 17, I don't know how many of them manage over a billion dollars, right? So when we're t there's one, <laughs> yeah. Well, there's one that manages over a billion dollars. How do we get the clientele, the corporate accounts, the customers with that high net value to be uh, part of uh, Redemption Bank? Like what's the marketing plan? What's the strategy to make sure we're getting this type of clientele so that we have enough money to now lend out to our community? Yeah, so just a, a little bit about how this banking works, man. At the end of the day, um, because a lot of these banks are in low to moderate income areas, regulators look at their loans and say they're risky and now honestly historically this has been deemed as, as racist in, in, in many aspects um they grade out every loan and we've seen i've talked to black bank presidents that would tell me i got regulators coming in here grading my loans for a barbershop as risky when these people have never missed a loan they paid on time they've done everything i've asked them to do but because they in this neighborhood, they get they get treated as always risky. And what that means is if that loans for one hundred thousand dollars, then the regulator tells that bank, you need to keep one hundred thousand dollars of cash in your reserves because that loan may go under. Now, what, what that means is that you got to keep that one hundred thousand dollars and it's not on the street making money anymore. You got to yeah. hold. You got to hold it. So what we do to get around that, what we're going to be able to do is say, look, you know, we're going to cast a wider net. See, most black banks are CDFIs. They're highly concentrated in cities, in, in regional areas. We're choosing not to be a CDFI because, you know, unfortunately, CDFIs are too often equated to nonprofits and they have all these restrictions. Don't get me wrong. They do the really hard work. They're mission driven. However, not taking that label and just being a straight up bank, you get an opportunity to play across the country. You get an opportunity to recruit across the country. And this bank was built by black entrepreneurs. And I think that's the biggest difference. Having a bank that... 85% of our black investors are entrepreneurs, doctors, lawyers, uh, you know, hedge fund folks, private equity people. We got one pitch. Let's build a bank we actually use. That's something. Okay. Let's build a bank that you, me, and everybody who wants to bank black will actually use. Now, we can all have a conversation about why we don't bank black now, and we know what those reasons are. Well, let's alleviate those reasons by creating a bank that gives me the service I need and the access to credit I need, how I need it, to make sure yeah. my business can grow. If we can do that, then naturally I believe the black people will support black owned banks. But if you can't, you can't make that up. You gotta show up with the services. We don't, we don't give each other a pass. How many, how many of us got black bank cards in our wallet but may not even use them? And then there was a study at Stanford a while back that showed that 64% of black people said they would automatically go move to a black bank if they felt they got the services that they could get at a white bank. We gotta beat that threshold. We have to be able to be competitive even to get our own people's support. And that's fine. I'm okay with that. I'm not afraid of competing. That's exactly why we're doing this in Utah. So we can have access to the resources in a regulatory environment so that we can compete. I don't want you coming to me just because I'm black. I want you to come because I'm the best at what I do. And you believe in what we're doing because we want to be the best for us. I think over the last 20 years, banks have been in a crisis. This year, mid-sized and small banks have been falling apart on a publicly traded market. What are some of those services that people need? And what do you think banks can do better if i'm being honest to have our trust because when, when i talk about a lot of banking stocks on the show 
Not many people say that they trust banks and for a multitude of reasons. Can you address like what you're going to do to build those kind of relations where they do trust? And then what do you think some of those services that people will need to make us want to bank with you? You know, the, the distrust of African-Americans and the banks have, has been since the uh, since right after the Civil War. W. Du Bois said it the best when the Freedmen's Bureau, which was created for free people, ended up being a Ponzi scam and deleting 90% of all black wealth when that bank closed. Nobody got a refund. Nobody got an IOU. It was just gone. W.B. Du Bois said they would have been better off if we had remained slaves for another decade than to suffer the ramifications psychologically of losing all of our money in a federal bank that the government created. And we are the children of that distrust. We're still here and the distrust is still real. So it starts with the fact of who's running the bank can you put faith in these people that run the bank? And then two, when it comes down to making a decision, I know we got laws that supposedly say it's anti-discriminatory. You should not use race in a negative way, but the numbers are the numbers. We have to be able to think outside the box because I'm going to tell you right now, as long as we rely on credit scores in this country as a primary indicator of who is worthy of owning anything or getting access to credit, we will fundamentally yeah. have a racist system. So the yep. future of banking has to be around looking at people more than a credit score. The future of banking has to be able to see people from cash flow. And you and I, you and I know we're dealing with black entrepreneurs. 90% of us are sole entrepreneurs. And a lot of them just go straight cash because they don't, for the exact reasons, they'd rather just be a cash-based business than go into debt. But that doesn't mean they're not yeah. good at what they're doing. They're actually slowing themselves down by not leveraging credit. But if we could go to them and, and show them, look, the decisions will be based off of more than this algorithm and that algorithm that Experian, Equifax, and TransUnion put out there says that 50% of Black people shouldn't be trusted. That's what it says. And so any system that possibly could believe that 50% of us shouldn't be trusted to get a loan, that system shouldn't be trusted. So we must be at the forefront, all of us who are in this space, and moving our people away from these antiquated algorithms that talk about credit scoring in a way that limits our ability to have full access to this capitalist economy. So, Okay. When Dr. Martin Luther King died, you said there was 120 banks, right? Black 100, banks? 135. 135? Yep. And now there's 20. Right. So that's pretty disturbing. So, A, how come that isn't something that people have um, talked about a lot? And why has that drastic, because I mean, at this point, there's probably going to be zero. If this trend continues, in the next exactly. 30 years, there's not going to be any any black owned banks at all. So yeah. what is the root cause for the for the collapse of black banks? And why hasn't anybody really been championing that? Look, in, in that, that's a great question. Um, a dear friend of ours, uh, Marissa, uh, wrote the book Color of Money. If you want to if you're out here right now, you want to read the history of all this, the color money, black banks and closing the racial wealth gap. Take a look at it. Give her a shout out. She, she did an amazing book there. But let me give you some, some personal history here. My family started a black bank in 1936 in Georgia, South Georgia, Baker Byronville. This bank was started by my great great grandfather and, and his brother-in-law. And it was built for the fact of they wanted to create a bank that could uh, finance sharecroppers to buy the land that they were sharecropping on because everybody knew that when slaves left and started sharecropping, that 10% was just a way to stay alive long enough to keep working. But we created a bank that could finance them buying the land that they were formerly slaves on and these sharecroppers could go and create prosperous lives. And it worked. 
Now that bank ran from 1934, and in 1934 there was about 180 black banks. There was a, there was a tremendous amount of black banks. We went out. Uh, we lost that bank in 1976. We lost that bank in 76 because the American economy declined right after the Vietnam War. Everything was economically trash. Really, a lot of hints of where we are right now. But we were yeah. forced. We were forced out. It wasn't like we just closed because we didn't have business. The bank closed because regulators were over-regulating black banks and not giving us the same treatment as they were giving white banks. The regulators, at the end of the day, are the police. At the end of the day, they are the police of the industry. And we all know policing is different in different neighborhoods. Yeah. In our neighborhood, or the black banking neighborhood, traditionally those regulators have been harder on black banks, not making them have the capital requirements that white banks had and forcing us into situations where ultimately my family's bank was forced to auction. Not because we were making money. We got forced to auction, like literally auctioned off. And we know what that looks like in the deep south, right? And ultimately, that our black bank was auctioned off and got rolled up into what we call now PNC Bank. That's the story of America. So your, mm. your bank got turned into PNC Bank? Right. Mm. So this, this is interesting. You, you brought up Robert Smith, uh, who's, who you said is, is one of the investors in, in uh, the Redemption Bank. Uh, in his story, he went from a career of engineering to now what he's done in, in the world of venture capital. So your story starts in law. I wonder how you come into something as historic that you're about to bestow upon in the world of finance and banking. Yeah. So when I first came into I'm, I'm a, first, I'm a fellow with the Aspen Institute. Um, and when I came uh, into practicing law, uh, I, I did some time working at SBA and I and I helped well, was a part of the team to help create and implement the payroll protection program. And we all knew uh, about that. So when the payroll protection first program first came out um, massively, black people were locked out of that first round. We all remember the headlines, couldn't get access to it. And that for me sort of highlighted in the beginning, like, okay, the reason we couldn't get it is because black banks had the PPP application, emailing it to their customers to fill out by hand. And at best uh, Adobe, you know, uh, email, you can fill it in when white banks was filling it out for their customers, using the data, sending them hyperlinks to approve and getting the money out like that. So by the time we had figured out where the email was to email the SBA, tens of thousands of applications was getting put through the system by big banks every day. And that digital divide between what the black banks were able to do digitally, it came home to roost and it, it hurt us bad. We almost lost a generation of entrepreneurs because we couldn't keep up technologically with the big banks. And that, that could have been the last 20, that could have been it. That could have been absolutely the end, uh, end game for us. So Dr. King and I started thinking like, okay, how do, how do we help these banks increase their digital capabilities? But then also, how do we stop them from living on the edge and get them better loans so that they're not just living in a state where they, the loans are so high, highly fragile or, or just are, are deemed as um, a high risk of default? Well, that's when yeah. we started the National Black Bank Foundation. So that's when we started digging into big sports saying, all right, if you are in the industry right now that makes money off of black and brown bodies and talent, then we think you have a different obligation, a different burden in how you bank. And so we start making the case. And that's when big sports, the NBA showed up, then the NFL, and we just closed a deal with Major League Soccer and Truist with black banks. We put almost a billion dollars through black banks since George Floyd and big sports and big entertainment to diversify their portfolios. So, you know, you to 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 help these banks 
continue to grow or to save this last generation of banks, we have to make sure they catch up digitally. Because I'm going to tell you, your kids and their kids after that, if it is not digital, it won't exist. The only reason black banks, many of them are still hanging on now because our aunties and our grandmamas still yeah. holding all their money there. But when that generation moves on, this could be it. This literally could be it unless we figure out a way of making sure that they can meet the technological demands of the marketplace, which is why we had to, one, get a real bank that was brick and mortar with redemption. But we also needed to be in a state where the technology was what we needed it to be so we can survive beyond this. We, you know, we there's no easy fix here, but it begins yeah. with we have to help each other. We got to be committed to banking and, and, and impactfully banking with our own institutions. Um, you're fighting a hell of a uphill battle. I'm very proud of you for doing so and want to thank you for it. I do want to ask you, though, is it too late to close the wealth gap? And let's say if it is, what things should we be looking to do over the next 10, 15 years? Uh, what practices should we follow to be able to like sustain our families? Of course, I always talk about long term investing here. But to our audience, what are the like two or three pieces of advice which you give for what you're seeing on the banking side, how they need to prepare? So, you know, this goes to speak to exactly why I created my my fintech called Ready Life um, that you can download on Google and Apple at the end of the day. The only the, the cornerstone of creating wealth in our country is owning appreciating property, whether you live in it or not. But owning real estate is, is the is the cornerstone of our system. We created Ready Life so that people can purchase homes without a credit score. Fundamentally, I've already told you, I think credit scores are racist because they believe half of us yeah. don't have the right to own a home. But two. We created this system to underwrite off a of cash flow for people to have cash, but don't have a credit. And 44% of black people own a home versus 76% of white people. So when you ask the question, can we close the racial wealth gap? There is the racial wealth gap. We're looking at it right there. That spread between 44 and the, the high 70s is the cornerstone of it. And then when you look at the, the timeline, the arc of when we own a home, the average black person doesn't own their first home until their mid 40s. And so the average white person, that's their second or third home. But if your yeah. first home is in your mid 40s, think about how much equity you missed out on collecting over the decades that you could have done if you had done it yeah. 10 to 12 years earlier. So to close the racial wealth gap, to me, we have to focus on our ability to, to buy into appreciating assets at an earlier stage of life. And we have to create access points to get in the capital to do so that is not based on fundamentally racist algorithms like credit scoring. If we can get beyond the credit scores and if we can start buying earlier and start collecting and, and that appreciative value over time in a longer period of time, we can see the racial wealth got closed. In our lifetime, brothers, we must live in a world where the majority of black people own the roof over their head. That is what I hope that we can look back on this era when we all put in our blood, sweat and tears into this movement, that we want to be the first majority black community with a majority of us own a home over our head. So let me ask you this. Uh, well, I'm going to ask you a quick question. Then I have another question to follow up. Um, so you, this is the first time in history that black people have purchased a white bank, right? Right. That's actually pretty legendary. Congratulations. Um, it is. So there's, you know, there's a large pessimistic viewpoint in our community a lot of people was like you know in, in america technically you're, you're never you're never going to be free as a black person in america especially playing the traditional game as far as you know because they always change the rules and it's rigged so it's like the freeman's bank and then they take the money 
And then it's like you said, your family started a bank and then they foreclosed on it. And then it turns into a, a white bank. Right. And it's, it keeps happening over and over systematically. They find ways. And then it's like a tax issue here or they bring up something and it, 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 it systematically has always happened since the inception of this country, even before. Um, are you are you thinking about that at all when because you're still playing inside the system you're an entrepreneur but like bank government regulations you got to deal with government stuff like that do you feel like it, it, it's never going to be a situation where there's going to be hundreds of thriving black banks because the government is just not gonna allow it you know i think it's an all hands on deck all above all approach um i think the topic for us to your point about being free yeah, we may never truly be free in my lifetime or yours, but we can get closer to sovereignty. Black economic sovereignty to me means more. That means that we have the four-legged stool that every sound and stable community or people has. We've been trying to build it, but I think this is where we got to use this moment in a post-George Floyd world and take all these folks who claim to be allies and, and really rethink how we can be useful to each other. That four-legged stool begins with education. You have to control your education. I'm talking about sovereignty here, meaning that our HBCUs have to be adequately funded. We should not live in a world where a Black child has to worry about being taught lies about slavery because some governor thinks that he should just make it up and tell his kids whatever. Secondly, it, our health care. We have to have control to make sure we get fair and accurate health care. We know that there's racism in our healthcare system. We know that we get misdiagnosed. We get different procedures than other folks because nobody wants to take the time to work with us. Our lives don't matter as much to some people. We have to have sovereignty in our health care, make sure we have access to health care in a way that is reflective of the values in us and our humanity. The third is capital. What we're talking about, credit is like water. You find me a community yeah. without opportunity, it's because that water is not flowing to that community. And the fourth, which you also do very well at EYL, is the narrative. You must control and protect the narrative. If we can control how we are viewed by each other and how the world sees us, or at least fight back on these misconceptions of who we are and what we believe in and what we stand for, then that stool is where we can build this level of sovereignty that, yes, the system will always be the system. We will always probably have to struggle against it. But if we can protect ourselves, by creating this table, this system, or these four legs, we can connect education, capital, healthcare, and our narrative, then we can protect ourselves from what may come. And I think that is the purpose of what we all are trying to do in all of these four fields, is that we have to protect ourselves and we must create a level of sovereignty so that the next time something happens, we shouldn't be sitting here watching PPP fly by and everybody else get access to resources and we don't because our banks didn't have the technology to get us the money that we were told was legally ours. Can't live in that world. Sovereignty to me is the, is the, is the goal. Ashley, what you're doing is beyond inspiring. It's historic and it's revolutionary. So, so we thank yeah. you for that. I want to shift a little bit because we live in the world, like you said, we can shape our narrative. We can control some of the That's media right. that we put out. I know you have a production company. Yeah. And we live in a world where content is king. And you did something yeah. very legendary that I don't think most people even know about. Yeah, when you started acquiring content during the yeah. so-called writer's strike that, you know, we just came out of. Can you talk about the legendary move that you made? Yeah. So so Dr. King and I and I love my sister to death because she we, we ride together on all these deals. We kind of like how y'all do it. You know, y'all show up the, the tag team. And so Dr. King and I went and bought uh, P3 Media. 
And P3 Media was, is another, we on brand. You know, we take black investor dollars and we go buy a white production company. We stay on brand. This particular brand was- Gentify that hood. There you go. There you go. So- well played. Right. So we went and bought it because one, we realized, um, I mean, what are you really buying, right? You want to buy the privilege and the access that comes in Hollywood for those companies that we don't normally have. Right. So this was a company that had the number one show on Netflix the year before. This is a company that created the show Suits, which, you know, Suits is like what the most streamed show in the history of streaming at this point. Yeah. So, you know, Gene Klein, who created Suits, is now our content director. So we, we went and bought the best of the best team to say, all right, we need a vehicle by which we can promote the stories of our community and get the access. And the key for us was this company was being incubated inside of Disney. So what it did for us immediately is when you acquired this company, now we got real estate inside of Disney on Burbank in L.A. right there next to Marvel across the hall from Pixar. You know what I'm saying? So that is the access we wanted to create so that we can get past where we think Hollywood is broken. Hollywood is broken. Right now, if you're a content creator and you got the greatest idea, the greatest story, by the time you get it in front of the right people, somebody and some middleman, some agent has nickel and dimed you. To, we only probably got five or 10% left of your IP because you had to yep. give away everything just to get in front of somebody, right? We're cutting through all of that. We have access directly to the buyers. Disney has a first look. So Disney gets to take a look at it. So if you your content comes to us, we can get it to Disney first. Netflix is on deck second. HBO, Showtime. We cut out all the middle people and just bring us the content so we can preserve those economics to make it so black creatives can have um, create more wealth without having to go through all the middle people. Can I, Ian, can I just do a follow-up real quick? Yeah, Please yeah. do. So you acquired Suits, right? You guys own it. This is a show that was on from 2009 to, I believe, 2019. As you start to see it climb in its viewership, what do you like? What's the, how are you guys feeling as you're seeing this happen? Well, you know, it's funny. I talked to Gene, uh, Gene Klein, who, who works with us. Gene and I were having this conversation in Miami uh, a couple of weeks ago. And, you know, for the people that created it originally, they thought it was iconic then. And I think now the big shock is. People don't even know how old this show is. People watch it on Netflix. And the only reason yeah. people are figuring out how old it is when they pull out the Blackberries. And they're like, oh, damn, what is a Blackberry? You know, until you see them use a cell phone from 2007, you know, people don't know. So it's it's been exciting. Um, it's been great for us because, you know, we're able to tell people, look, the talent that created this iconic show is right here. And now they're at, uh, you know, a company with with black leadership and the world is wide open right now, man. Like we sent, if, if I tell content creators all the time, if you have good ideas, um, we're doing really great right now. If you look at the, because of the strike, we've also leaned in there. We, we, we always take a chaos and create an opportunity because of the strike. There's no new content. So we really dug into getting great stories that we can turn into docu-series. And I'm gonna put one out here on EYL that y'all can check out. So y'all get to hear it here first, even though we got a Vanity Fair article coming out on the next uh, couple of weeks. Um, we just finished, we just finished the uh, the first unscripted television show filmed at the White House uh, wow. surrounding the release of American hostages around the world. And most of them are people of color. So we took you take what happened with Brittany Griner and you say, you know, for the people that wanted Brittany out, you didn't understand why it was taking so long. You didn't understand why people weren't meeting with her spouse. And then when she did get out, the other side was like, oh, you did too much. You traded her for Satan. Now it's all bad. And so that whole dynamic we felt the american people needed to understand so we 
just finished a show called The Return that's going to come out this winter where we go into the Venezuelan prisons to record behind the scenes, to record at the White House behind the scenes, to record at their families behind the scenes, to see the release of people of color from foreign prisons that people don't know about. This is the power of telling a narrative because there's black and brown people in foreign prisons right now who never bounce the ball, who have no fame or notoriety that the world needs to know about because their freedom is, it should be just as paramount as anybody else. And these are the stories that I think Dr. King and I uh, no need to be told. Uh, and we think it can have a tr- profound impact on the a conversation around black lives in a holistic sense, because, you know, who's worthy of coming home is a serious conversation. And I think the American people need to understand what goes into that. In the media space, we've seen a dramatic fall on Netflix last year. Spotify is going through issues. Podcasts are in trouble. Disney's in trouble. What What's broken in American media from a business model perspective? Um, I'm interested to hear your take. Suits is one of my favorite shows of all time. But what okay. do you see in a business model that's broken that you feel you can fix? And what's your outlook on media companies and the publicly traded market like over the next five or six years? Um, you know, it, in my mind, man, we're looking at the negotiated death of cable. That's what you really are seeing. Mm. Um, they're negotiating the end of cable because at the end of the day, um, these streaming services, obviously Netflix is doing okay, but the rest of them are sucking wind. And when they're negotiating with actors and they're negotiating with writers and they know that they want a percentage of the revenue, it's an impossible conversation if you're not making money to share with somebody a negative, right? But the problem is if you're Disney, uh, theoretically, why do you want people to have to go through Charter or AT&T to get to you when you can sell your app straight up? So right yeah. now, for, for and you saw this happen in the Midwest. Disney jumped off a charter. They 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 jumped off for two months just to prove a point. Mm-hmm. And so Charter yeah. took off ABC Disney off of all of its platforms. The point is, for streaming to make money, they're going to have to get the middleman out of the way, and that's cable. So what you're seeing right now is a negotiated death of cable, so that cable will go back to doing what they originally were doing, which is provide a phone service or internet service, but get cable out of the content industry. So if you're looking at, mm-hmm. you know, my thoughts on publicly traded companies, cable is going to hit, going to take the hit. The the other companies are going to bounce back. But if you're looking at the 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 internet services that have been making money off of cable old school, that day is coming to an end quickly. Oh, actually, it's been a pleasure. Absolutely. Let the people yes. know. Um, is is the bank up and running? Can they open account? Well, we'll be up and running top of Q1. Right now, they can go to they can find us on all of our IG and keep up with us and join our newsletter at Redemption Holding. Redemption Holding on IG. Or you can find me, Ashley D. Bell on IG. We'll keep everybody up to date. You can join right now and be the first up to get your Redemption bank card. Uh, once we get everything uh, where we need it. But I'm going to tell you right now, man, this is the beginning of uh, of a movement that we don't think will be the we may be the first. We are not the last. It, uh, there are the brothers and groups across the country right now who are starting to see the light that we have to create banks that can reach everybody. We got to get out of this space where we got to have a bunch of brick and mortar banks. That day is done. You are not going to build a bank anymore off of building buildings and having all this overhead. That day's done. If you can't reach somebody on your phone, you're not going to reach them. So uh, we love to have everybody's, you know, lean into redemption holding um, and 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 join us. You know, whether that's from being a, a founder or investing or bringing your business over from where you are now. Impact banking means that when you go to bed every night, you want to feel good knowing your money's being impactfully invested. 
And you can't do that with banks that don't share your values. So line up, bank your values. Bank your values. Like that. Yes, sir. Ski. Um, well, it's been an honor. Uh, I'm sure we'll see each other soon. So, um, yes, keep I'll us in the air 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 air. <laughs> <laughs> Hit you on the block. Hit you on the block. <laughs> All right, fellas. I appreciate it. Y'all be All good. Right. Thank you. All right, take care. Okay. Very insightful. Massive presenter, too. Yes, that's yeah. super exciting. Super Great exciting. And, and it ties into what you guys talked about with Van. I think it's a perfect tie-in to being banking and finance and media, like you were saying, control four, the narrative. Four corners. Four corners, the man. Four, the four corners. Of, four corners, same thing. You know, one, one of the most insightful things I've I've heard from a guest on uh on Earn Your Leisure. Um, I sat, I told you after that episode, I said we got a classic. I think I called you, Ian. I went home. I told everybody about. It. I'm like, we got a class. We got a class. But yeah. that piece of that interview was, I mean, the way he broke that down was so profound. I'm like, this makes perfect sense. Oh this yeah. And for yeah. all you um, naysayers out there, that um, like, why are you interviewing Diddy and he's talking about um liquor? Um, we need more black banks and black farms and and grocery stores. Well, we've highlighted Oasis Grocery Store, who um is a black owned grocery store chain from Tulsa, Oklahoma. Absolutely. Um, watch the interview and support them. Um, and we just highlighted a black owned bank, um, and have a real before. actual chartered bank have before. So instead of you criticizing, cause I guarantee you, you've, you've done nothing. Um, I, I don't, I, you, you don't own a bank. <laughs> you've never, you've never even been to a farm before. Um, so it, it's, it's, no, it's cliche. Like, Oh, why don't we talk about black farms? You don't even bro. It's two letters. That's it. You've only taken public transportation oh. your whole life. You don't. You don't even know what a tractor. You don't know what a tractor looks like. Now you want to talk about black farms, but since you're so enthusiastic about highlighting black farms and black-owned banks and not liquor companies, well, you should support the black-owned banks that we've highlighted and the black grocery stores that we've highlighted. And you should make these episodes That's go right. viral. Ashley How the last week's episode go? So Ashley just texted me. Van was the reason that they bought the production company. <laughs> Think about that. How that's full circle. That's crazy. Yeah. Um, for that's powerful, you, man. For all of you naysayers out there. Who knows what that strategy could have done for you, right? Like, you could have heard that that four-corner strategy. If you haven't heard it, go listen to the episode. Go really? watch the episode. But who knows what that can inspire inside of you? Yeah, for sure. For sure. I mean, but we're staying positive. Of course. We're of course. staying super Stand positive. positive. You, you get proud of them, huh? But also, okay, going back to the Ackman thing real quick. At some point, you gotta when the kids act bad, you gotta <laughs> cultivate the audience. I know people like Ian, you tripping. Listen, you know how bad it had to be for me to stop selling for 10 months. I wanted to kill all the bad little kids. They was a red panda. If I made you money, please put yes in chat. And now the group that we have now, every call is absolutely amazing because we only have people who want to execute who are getting amazing returns like sometimes you have to cultivate the bad weeds out of the crop in order to make things thrive um so i know rashad it may bother you at times but just keep doing what you're doing activate your true joy we'll be good can i get my leather jacket back for 24 though please appreciate you it you and ian switch roles <laughs> <laughs> like come on man so let's talk about a few stocks before we before we head out of here so um okay so we talked about defensive stocks last week uh general dynamics 
X O M and C V X. So when mm -hmm. should people, if they are invested in those stocks, when should they exit or think about exiting those stocks? That's a very good question. Um, general dynamics, I will probably hold until 293.15. Um, let me do ExxonMobil next. ExxonMobil, maybe 160 flat. And then CVX, probably 225. Um, the, the reason being, uh, if you looked, S&P like, is up 14% now. Uh, over the last year, it's up 21%. So this arbitrage play of being long defense and long oil is really a short-lived strategy. I wouldn't hold these stocks for... 15 years because it's better companies that can give you a higher rate of return and better alpha. Um, but it's really more of a short term adjustment and based on what's going on in our overall geopolitical um, environment. So those, those are the three prices at which I would exit. Um, but I, I'll say two tech, two index is still kicking ass. VOO, VTI, Apple, Microsoft um, are doing great. As a result, but th those are the three prices at which I would exit those three positions we talked about. Or if Pelosi gotcha. says that she's going with him and gets out, get out. <laughs> and she, puts out her she put out her manuscript. We, we're going with that. Do you feel morally, um, uh, did, did there a moral issue in, in investing in uh, defense stocks? Yeah. Um, and I'm not favorable, but I will say on, on the other end, though, we do, and I've been talking to Red Panda about this um, a lot. We do need a lot more innovation in our military defense because we're behind. There's one company uh, I've talked about at ad nauseum with Red Panda that could be one, but we don't have enough development on our military defense side. Um, there's so much bloat in military spending by design. We need innovation there. So we don't need another Snapchat or another OnlyFans or dog delivery food cupcake service some of the core infrastructure things like we need to be better at but yeah is there a moral issue in it yes absolutely but i can argue in capitalism no one cares about morals moral investing it, it yeah. is a a big a big earnings week we're getting into that season again i'm gonna let's talk about some companies which ones you're looking at that people should keep on their watch list maybe yes some numbers going out about uh, some of them. Uh, let's start. It's big financial week. Let's talk. We got uh, Bank of America reporting tomorrow. We got United. We got Johnson & Johnson reporting tomorrow. What's your thoughts on those? Uh, Bank of America, I would not touch. It is a value stock with the 10-foot pole. United Airlines, I'm not the biggest fan of because it is... I mean, I use them all the time. Shout out to you guys. But it's not one of my favorites. Um, so exit... Mm -hmm. Maybe if it got to $16.47, I would want to potentially buy it at that price. Anything higher than that would be too much. And Johnson & Johnson is okay. Um, I like Lily a lot better. Johnson & Johnson is solid. So, yeah, stay away from Bank of America. United, no, until that price. And Johnson & Johnson is decent. Uh, I mean, of course, right. like Tesla, Schwab, I wouldn't touch. Discover, I wouldn't touch. Lockheed is a great potential addition on the military defense side as well. 
All right. Tomorrow, uh, Wednesday, not tomorrow. Wednesday, we have uh ASML, which is one of my long-term picks in my in my portfolio. Like I love love them. Uh Netflix is reporting as well. What's, what's your thoughts on Netflix? Uh Netflix has been, been doing a lot better. Um, they've adjusted well um from that crash that they've had. Um I really don't like anything in the media space right now. If I had to pick something in the media space, they are definitely the leader. But that sector overall, I'm I'm leaving alone for sure. Yeah, streaming is a tough business. Yeah, Allies reporting. Shout out to our good folks of Ally. They'll be reporting their earnings on Wednesday as well as well as Citizens Bank. Uh, and then on Thursday, one of my favorites, and I said if outside of the Magnificent Seven, I'm putting TSM as my sleeper. Still long-term mm -hmm. on them. What's your thoughts? They're reporting on Thursday. TSM, to me, would be the greatest company on Earth if they didn't have that geopolitical conflict. They would be probably number three after Apple or Microsoft. It's just I can't afford that, that risk. But, man, incredible company. We're going to get it right. We're going to get it right. And then uh, Friday, American Express. Love. One of my favorites. American Express, I love. Uh, FICO, I love. Visa is okay, but American Express is one that I like a hell of a lot. So th those financials, especially like the credit card companies, they've been booming ever since the adjustments in, in rates as well. Um, there's always a market that is going to pop somewhere that's going to do well. Financials, pharma, tech, healthcare, another four corners. Two tech, two index, another four corners. Perhaps. Well. So, yeah. Higher rates, higher income. All right. Absolutely. All right. Rite Aid uh, filing for bankruptcy. Interesting. We um, spoke about that a few weeks ago. Yeah. The day Tough. has come. Um, and can we talk about this Carl Icon thing real quick? So uh, Carl Icon um, has a huge loss trying to short uh, malls in America. And I know everyone wants to recreate the big short. If you've ever read the book or watched the movie, you've seen that um, Burry went through a lot of issues, even though he was correct. When you're putting on a short, you're fighting every hedge fund bank institution that is long in that investment. So you need a lot of catalysts to go in your favor. And, you know, sometimes regulatory bodies may, may not be favorable or play the rules the way they should be. Uh, as you've seen in big short, I think one of the biggest mistakes Carl Icahn made here is not realizing who his competitors were who will go long in that position and also too like in order for the entire mall sector to fall you need the commercial real estate sector to fall first he's getting eaten alive on this i'm really worried about iep overall and where his career is going to land but you can't make a back to the acme thing earlier you have to be very careful who you're willing to make enemies with because they may want to go back to war with you you have to be careful. Um, everything, there's no free market. There's no free economy. There's no free lunch. If you take an active position and you have enemies, some of those enemies may go long. So you have, write this down. You have to know the catalyst. If you're going to be in a short, what will make it go long and what will make all of those funds exit that position so that there's room for it to drop. It won't go drop just because you put RSI and some FIB level, levels on top of it. That's not how the game works. Go long. That's why 80% of the trades that I tell you guys here to go long on, um, I do so because like it's really hard for a short to work out in your favor, unless it's AMC or GameStop. Hurts. Somebody, lucid yeah, somebody, somebody say pause on that go long, but we're going to let you live. <clears throat> okay. 
Come on, we're going to let you go. <laughs> okay. My I love bad. You, okay. I, I love I'm you, brother. Around. I'm, I'm, Chicago, I'm going to five jokes. Yeah. I love you, my brother. <laughs> hey, my name is Richard Balls. Good plan. Pause. Feed your time out. <laughs> this episode of Market Mondays was sponsored by Oscar Meyer. <laughs> the glizzy, the glizzy master. Uh, <laughs> oh right. man. Um. Okay. Very insightful conversation. This gonna get clipped up. They are gonna leave all the the car icon stuff up and go right to that part. Uh it's very insightful. Very very mm -hmm. insightful conversation. Get your tickets to Chicago this Sunday. We are yes. bringing out the full range of arsenal um mm -hmm. talking about everything when it comes to investing and anything that you need to equip to come into 2024 and uh hit the ground running so um this is this is going to be one of the ones man don't don't miss this opportunity to catch the final leg of the market monday's domestic part of the tour for sure Absolutely. for sure uh -huh. tomorrow yes. so be there so tomorrow. We have Ray Lewis, Ernie Leisure tomorrow, one o'clock Eastern Standard Time. Shout out to Ray. And uh, yeah, that's it. It's been real, y'all. Uh, do we? Yo, happy birthday! Happy forty uh, first to our brother Mike, uh, eighty two baby. Happy birthday, my brother. Love is love. We got to have dinner with him uh, this past week. Uh, celebrated with him. More blessings to you and uh, happy birthday to Jess. I'm our birthday's coming up this week too, so happy, happy birthday. birthday. Yes. Yeah. Yes, happy birthday. Two for one. <laughs> um, my whole life has changed. <laughs> yes, sir. Drake versus Joe Button. Drizzy. Afterthoughts. Afterthoughts. Drizzy. Shout out to Drizzy. Shout out to Joseph Button. Um yeah. number one album in the country. They said that uh Hi, Michael. I don't know, Drizzy. Shout out to Drizzy, man. Um, Hold your head. He uh, dropped the Adonis freestyle. Shout out to Adonis. That's tough. I like that video. <laughs> <laughs> I don't care what you like. <laughs> Shout out to Joe Biden, man. That's about Joe Biden. Very passionate about uh, pop culture and music. Yes. He's been a steward yeah. in, uh, in this for a, a long time. So. Top three on it. <laughs> shout out to shout out to Joe. Oh my God. <laughs> yes. Tell Nothing controversial. Yeah, telling the truth have have consequences. Especially telling the truth has consequences. consequences. For sure. You did a great job, bro. Joe Joey. Yeah. You so you, you thought he job. told the truth? You thought he told the truth? Yeah. <laughs> Corey, hey Ian, clip this up. Talk with y'all, love y'all. I'm the option open though. I gotta go to the. You gotta see the boy. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I'm be brand new. I'm with the boy, Chubb, the boy. all that. OVO Ian, all that. What's up? Got the leather oh, jacket. You already been Drake around the facility. Drake's in my top two, for sure. We were having that conversation the other night. We, we gotta have yeah. a conversation. Him being one of the greatest of all time. Well, yeah, even Elliot, we was with Elliot. Shout out to Elliot Wilson. Shout out to Elliot Wilson. Shout out to Selecon. We, yeah. we was with Elliot the other day, and um, we, was, we was talking about it backstage, and I was like, yeah, he's in my top two. And he's like, yeah, me too. He's like, who, Jay? He's like, him and Jay? And I'm like, yeah. He's like, yeah, me too. So, 
it's hard to argue. His run was longer than Bad Boy and Death Row combined. Kind of yeah. tough to argue. Point. For sure. Kind of tough. We want to come Thirteen years. Oh eight. Uh, yeah. 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 He never. He moved around Leno. Seven. Never took a summer off. Relentless. Tough. Number one. Number one for thirteen years running. Yeah. He wasn't. Number one. What artist? You're saying it like that's not my guy. I'm asking you a question. You don't have to. That's my guy. Is he? Was he number one every yeah, year? Kanye. I, I, I always said he was, but some people might argue like Kendrick had a year, Cole had a year. Was he number one? And yes, Future might have had a year. Yes or no question. He's my number. He's, he's been Has there. he been number one every single year? To me, yes. Okay, because that was different from what you said the other day. What I said? You said that you didn't agree with me what when I said that. I said he's been number one every year. You said no, no, because people were exactly it, like inside those years. There was a Kendrick year. Some people might say there was a future year. You see what I'm saying? Like there's years where they be like, he's what, not what, the, what do you say? Drake has been. Look, I'll say what this. You said this is what I'll say. This is what I'll say. <laughs> Here's what I'll say. Before Rashad or anybody in our area heard of Drake, thirteen straight though nobody else. Here's what I say, Ian, and we can we we'll, we can have phone calls that will we'll, we'll vouch for this. Yeah, there was a guy named Troy who was telling people that Drake is gonna be the next guy. You know why? Because Lil Wayne was his favorite artist. That was my favorite artist, him yeah. and Jay. Yeah, it was Nas early in my life, and then it, it evolved to Jay and Lil Wayne. And then Wayne, when I first heard Drake, I said, "Yo, this is the next guy. This is the next guy." That's in 2007, 2008. I used to put people in my car like, "Yo, you gotta listen to this dude." They're like, "Uh, he's singing." Yeah, I'm my like, brother. Nah, nah, trust, trust me. So he's always been my guy. Like, we're not gonna run from that. I'm just saying inside of those years, somebody may say like, hey, Kendrick did put out Good, good, uh, good Kid, Mad City. Cole did put out Four Sills. I'm saying he's always been number one. I'm, 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 I'm explaining myself. I'm not defending Richard, myself. Richard, is this not what you recall at the dinner the other night? <laughs> There's a couple of things that he doesn't recall. He's not he's not the best with memory. <laughs> There's a couple of things. I just I, I just asked an opinion. I got a whole no no no. Was it? There's an explanation because sometimes if people don't have full context, Everybody, draw, everybody's draw opinion is different. I respect yeah. everybody's opinion. I just feel like Drake has been number one for the last 13 years. That's all. That's just that's just my own personal opinion. But that has changed. Your opinion has evolved. When, when has it not evolved? Your opinion has evolved. Drake. I've always been on Drake fan. I've always been a Drake fan. I've been a Drake fan since he, since the first mixtape came out. I was Drake. I wasn't a Drake fan when the first mixtape came out. Troy, talk to me, yo. Troy, talk to me. Fan. I wasn't a Drake fan when the first mixtape came out. We need I wasn't to set Drake up. Oh, hold, on, hold, on, hold, on. hold on, so y'all can see the real dialogue behind the scenes. I'll, I'll just leave it at this. This is my brother. His opinion has evolved. Is that fair? <sighs> Shout out to Drizzy, man. <laughs> Shout out to Drizzy. Uh, J Cole is the is the most dangerous MC right now. By the way. He's yeah, the thanks. most dangerous. He's he, the most he got dangerous. Off the dip and, no, and nobody even said nothing. He's uh he's 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 been on a, a rampage yes. these last five years on these features. Uh, he hasn't missed once. Shout out to J. Cole. Cole um, is Cole's the best rapper alive. I'm saying it right here. You heard it. Affirmative. <laughs> you heard <laughs> it. took me three years to say it. The last two, he's he, he had the verse of the year. He was last year for sure. This year. I mean, he has not missed. I cannot. Some so, shit you can't deny. He's the best rapper a lot right now. J. Cole. What, what's, what, what, what's one Brandon tip like or piece of advice that you can take for Cole and one from Drake to implement into 
everyone's businesses for the people like i ain't come here to hear the rap talk for, for, for drake it's two things i study from drake um consistency because he's he's been extremely consistent for a long period of time but also he's probably the best a and r in music where um finding a wave and riding a wave before it becomes a tsunami he found little baby early little baby was already hot in atlanta jumped on the wave uh favio far and the other kid from brooklyn jumped on the drill jumped on the drill wave the kid central yeah. c from london jumped jumped on the london wave or is he is the he boy, highlighting the wave the boy from the boy from jamaica what's his name popcorn popcorn jumped on the jamaican boy. wave night now drake drake though he jamaican one day wave no 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 don't do that you know that you hit that's, you my, that's my dude i respect it i respect it but that's what, you got to reinvent yourself what, 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 that, you I can't, you I, I, the west indian culture is toronto culture so that that I'm part of saying it. you got to reinvent yourself yeah, one yeah. day he's jamaican one day he's brooklyn <laughs> drill rap one day he's from hey, london uh, mike zoom in and Rashad. take me out this clip no, I'm, I respect it yeah. though. He's, he's he's speaking in Spanish one day. Bad he's he's you. so like that. I mean, what you're saying is, I, I I my only argument is that I wouldn't say he's riding a wave. I say that he's recognizing talent and saying let's get next to this talent and let the world be aware of the talent. So a guy like Yeet, who's on the album now, who like most people have never heard of, but he's been All killing right. it overseas, yeah. now has the number two single in the in the United States because of that. So like he's he's I can't call it a wave in a sense that most people in America aren't with. I mean a certain demographic. There might be like teenagers that know who he it's is. a wave. You think he's yeah. right? But you said riding the wave. You're not wrong riding the wave. Nah, you're not. You're not riding. You're not wrong. I I was in Hawaii. I, I surf like surf culture. I'm fully entrenched in it. But this is not. This is not that. <laughs> ride the wave. You find the wave. Ride you gotta the ride wave. the wave. You got. You can't go against yeah. the wave. You gotta ride the wave. Now he helps the wave turn to a tsunami. That's what he does. He puts the Drake Defense. effect on it Martin and makes it a, a, a regional. Right. He turns a regional so wave language, into a global tsunami. Let's say language is important. Not riding a wave, recognizing a wave. There's nothing wrong with riding waves. You're not really riding a wave. There's nothing wrong with riding a wave. I think you're taking it from a negative standpoint, like he's exploiting the wave. No, he's riding away. He's seeing a wave. He's getting on the surfboard. He's riding the wave. Was that word you said? Exploiting it. He's not exploiting it. No, I'm saying those words have come up before in conversations. They have. That's <laughs> but I'm saying as far as he's 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 riding waves. Shout out to the boy. Waves. Shout out to the boy, man. And J. Cole, I think what I learned from him is the art of quality over quantity. This is something I'm very, very big about. It's not about how much you put out sometimes, it's about the quality of work when it's you do fire. put it out. So these samples, these um verses that he's putting out. He's he's putting out 16 bars of fire. He's not every putting out day. an album. He's not putting out an album every year or a mixtape every single month or, you know, thousands of bars. But he's very selective about the 16 that he gives out and those 16 that he gives out. Yeah. I think the biggest thing with Cole is, is how authentic he is. Like he is who he is and yep. what he is is great. And he cares about the craft. He respects the craft. He's a historian of the craft. And you can feel it in every verse. Like, he literally is trying to assassinate everybody that he gets on a song with. Very intense. That's the core of hip-hop. I'm better than you. And, and he got Cam and, rapping again. You see that? Yeah, I saw that. Yeah, oh, he, had, like he had the army jacket lining on. He got Cam yeah. back. So he, you know what I mean? He cares about it. He wants He wants to be competitive in that nature. But he still is 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 wise enough to say, yo, I respect my peers. These are my brothers. But, like, right now, right now I feel like Muhammad Ali. And he should feel that way. But I also respect that he's a very public figure who lives a very private life. Amazing.
that I respect because you've yep. never seen his wife. You never see his kids. Never. But you know they exist. He made a whole album dedicated to them. I mean, it's like, you know it's like Kendrick Lamar, too. He's, he's like Kendrick. He's like Kendrick. Kendrick is even more reclusive, but they're both reclusive people. They're very reclusive, um, quiet, you know, off the radar type of people. Shout out to Kendrick. K Dot. I'm always right. Oh, and Drake album, though. You said Jay Z and Drake? No. No. Drake no you said Cole. Drake and Cole. Oh, Drake and J. Cole. Yeah. Phenomenal. Could happen. Could happen. Anything's possible. All right. All right, y'all. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, it's been real. Um, see you in Chicago. Love is love. Peace. 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 For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.